are now tuned in to this week's episode of our podcast. Today, we are going to interview some of the greatest and most influential minds in our field. By sharing our collective expertise, we will show you how to harness, control, and use your own skill set to achieve ultimate success and live the life you want. And now, please welcome your host. You're listening to TED Talks Daily. I'm Elise Hugh. In today's talk, we will consider the overwhelming power we humans have over nature and the planet. The power is double-edged, generative in many ways, but destructive to creatures, resources, and ultimately, ourselves. In his talk from TED Salon 2020, sustainability champion Occam Steiner brings clarity to why we need to choose a different path forward. Our survival depends on it. I work at the United Nations, and for the past couple of years, I have served as the head of the UN's development program. When I first walked into the UN headquarters in New York City many years ago, the first thing I noticed was a sculpture standing outside under the flags of the nations of the world. It's called the Knotted Gun, and it still stands there today. To me, that sculpture symbolized exactly what the UN was created to do 75 years ago to build peace out of the ashes of war. War that had been defined for so much of human history as the struggle of nations against nations, or the kind still raging in countries like Syria and Yemen that the United Nations works to end every day. That's what I imagined that not a gun to represent. But now, another kind of war is brewing. One that increasingly defines the 21st century, with a dominant risk to our own survival, is ourselves. A few years or even months ago, if I had suggested that we're all at war with ourselves, it may have felt strange. Especially when, according to so many metrics, humans are on average healthier, wealthier, and more educated than at any time in history. We have more knowledge, more science, more choices today than the founders of the United Nations could have ever imagined. But somewhere along the way, we lost our balance. In fact, think about this. Scientists are considering whether for the very first time in human history, instead of the planet shaping humans, humans are knowingly shaping the planet. It's called the Anthropocene, and it represents a new geological era. Today, humans literally have the power to alter the atmosphere and the biosphere in which we live, the power to destroy and the power to repair. No species has ever had that kind of power before. With it, we humans have achieved incredible things together, from closing a giant hole in the ozone layer, to preventing nuclear proliferation, to eradicating smallpox. But we have also taken the Earth and all the people on it to the brink. It's neither rational nor fair what we're doing. Today, One-third of all the food produced on the planet goes to waste, while one in ten people go hungry. Inequality has become extreme. Twenty-six people own the same wealth as half of humanity, based on recent data. 
Today, 7 million people die from air pollution each year. All about 7 million trees, the very things that keep our air clean, are cut down every few hours. We spend over 10 times more on fossil fuel subsidies alone than we do on all investments in renewable power, prolonging our carbon habit like a drug running through the economy's veins. You don't have to be an economist like me to know that these numbers just don't add up, that our economic paradigm is neither sustainable nor equitable. Climate change, rupturing inequalities, record numbers of people forced from their homes by conflict and crisis. For all of our power, these are the weapons we have built. Less tangible than a gun, but just as real, just as deadly. Add an epic pandemic, and this year, for the first time in 20 years, global extreme poverty is projected to rise and global human development a measure of the world's education, health and living standards, is set to decline for the first time since the measure began, 30 years ago. COVID-19 has not changed the future yet, but it has revealed these deep flaws in our present, bringing clarity to the fact that ending this war against ourselves is not about trade-offs. It's not about choosing between people or trees, between poverty or progress, it's about choosing to do things differently. In the midst of tragedy, the pandemic has also given us a glimpse of what peace could look like, where we can see the snowcap of a mountain for the first time because the smog has cleared. That's what happened in Nairobi, my home of many years, and one of the cities where air pollution plummeted as human activities slowed down, where it takes 10 days and not 10 years for a government to get support to those in need. That's what happened in Togo, which set up a digital system in record time to get cash to people unemployed or unable to work because of COVID-19 lockdowns. The idea of a green economy that is fair and just, where people and planet live in balance, is not new. But this moment is. And if I have learned one thing since starting out as a young economist years ago, whether I was working with Patan elders to improve the lives of farmers in Pakistan or navigating the controversies of building colossal dams, it's that systems don't change systems. People change systems. And whether you're a prime minister, a paramedic, or a protester on the street, you can choose to change this one. The people who are choosing to build forward better from COVID-19 build on growing momentum, the momentum of people coming onto the streets in protest from Beirut to Bogota, Quito to Cairo, or New York to New Delhi against racism and discrimination, climate change, the price of petrol or the cost of a train ticket, all united in a deep and rising frustration with this war we have been waging against ourselves. This moment builds on the choices of leaders I met as I traveled with the United Nations before lockdown. Leaders who choose to do things differently. Costa Rica made a choice to abolish its army and redirect military spending to education, health and the environment. Today they pay people to protect the trees. And as a result, forests have regenerated and now cover over half of the country. Or consider Denmark. It has chosen to produce all of its electricity from renewable sources by 2050 and has already passed the halfway mark, one of many countries moving in this direction. 30 years ago, 
powering our economy with renewable energy was science fiction. Ten years ago, it was considered too expensive. Today, renewable energy costs less and creates more jobs than fossil fuels in many parts of the world and offers the potential to put power quite literally back with the people. I saw this in Kenya. Two youth football teams playing their final match in the Mathari settlement at night who kept the game going thanks to solar-powered LED lights. I saw this change, these better choices, with His Majesty the King of Bhutan, just turned 40 years old, who chooses to measure progress based on gross national happiness, not gross domestic product. And I saw it on a rooftop, in Khartoum, with the young people who led the revolution in Sudan in 2019, young women and men who came out onto the streets with everything to lose, who spoke up for political change with conviction and courage, and who ultimately changed the course of their country. These are the people, the first generation of the Anthropocene, who are writing the next chapter for people and planet in this unprecedented moment. And with each choice they make, with each choice we all make, the future we want gets closer. Just like the knotted gun, there is another piece of art at the United Nations that I think about. A poem by a great Persian poet, Saadi. The poem is embroidered on a giant carpet that hangs on the wall inside the UN building, beneath which diplomats and staff from all nations work together every day towards that future we want. Saadi wrote that all the people on the planet are like different parts of the same body. Different but united, as if limbs of each other. It was that idea that led the generation before us to come together in the wake of war to create the United Nations 75 years ago. The idea that though we are different, we must choose to be united. But now it's our turn. Our challenge is to come together to preserve our collective self-interest and humanity, rather than tearing ourselves asunder. People and planet, in balance, building lasting, sustainable peace. Thank you. PRX. You're listening to TED Talks Daily. I'm Elise Hugh. On today's show, Dr. Bernice Albertine King. She's the daughter of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the CEO of the King Center. In her talk from TED 2020, she calls on all of us in America to think about this moment we're living in and remember that to move forward, we have to deconstruct systems of oppression that the country is built upon and rebuild in a nonviolent way. I was five years old when my father was assassinated. And he did change the world. But the tragedy is that we didn't hear what he was saying to us as a prophet to his, this nation. And his words are now reverberate, reverberating back to us. Change, we all know, is necessary right now. And yet it's not easy. But I want to talk about America's choice at a greater level. The prophet said to us, 
we still have a choice today, nonviolent coexistence or violent co-annihilation. We have seen literally in the streets of our nation, people who have been following the path of nonviolent protest and people who have been hell bent on destruction. Those choices are now looking at us and we have to make a choice. The history of this nation was founded in violence. In fact, my father said, America is the greatest purveyor of violence. And the only way forward is if we repent for being a nation built on violence. And I'm not just talking about physical violence. I'm talking about systemic violence. I'm talking about policy violence. I'm talking about what he spoke of, of the triple evils of poverty, racism, and militarism. All violent. Albert Einstein said something to us. He said, we cannot solve problems on the same level of thinking in which they were created. And so if we are going to move forward, we are going to have to deconstruct these systems of violence that we have set in America, and we're going to have to reconstruct on another foundation. That foundation happens to be love and nonviolence. And so as we move forward, we can correct course if we make that choice that daddy said, nonviolent coexistence and not continue on the pathway of violent co-annihilation. So what does that look like? That, that looks like some deconstruction work in order to get to the construction. We have to deconstruct our thinking. We gotta deconstruct the way in which we see people and deconstruct the way in which we operate, practice and engage and set policy. And so I believe that there's a lot of heart, H-E-A-R-T work to do in the midst of all the H-A-R-D, hard work to do. Because heart work is hard work. One of the things we have to do is we have to ensure that everyone, especially my white brothers and sisters, have to engage in the heart work, the anti-racism work in our hearts. No one is exempt from this, especially in my white community. We must do that work in our hearts, the anti-racism work. The second thing is that I encourage people to look at the nonviolence training that we did at the King Center, the KingCenter.org, so that we learn the foundation of understanding our interrelatedness and interconnectedness. That we understand our loyalties and our commitments and our policy making can no longer be devoted to one group of people, but has to be devoted to the, the greater good of all people. We all have to change and have to make a choice. It is a choice to change the direction that we have been going. We need a revolution of values in this country. That's what my daddy said. He changed the world. 
He changed hearts. And now what has happened over the last seven, eight years and through history, we have to change course. And we all have to participate in changing America with a true revolution of values where people are at the center and not profit, where morality is at the center and not our military might. America does have a choice. We can even choose to go down continually that path of destruction, or we can choose nonviolent coexistence. And as my mother said, struggle is a never ending process. Freedom is never really won. You earn it and win it in every generation. Every generation is called to this freedom struggle. You as a person may want to exempt yourself, but every generation is called. And so I encourage corporations in America to start doing anti-racism work within corporate America. I encourage every industry to start doing anti-racism work and pick up the banner of understanding nonviolent change personally and from a social change perspective. We can do this. We can make the right choice to ultimately build the beloved community. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Pitch to Post review show. Well, we've built up to it all week. It's one of the fiercest rivalries in the top flight. And boy, did it deliver. A thrilling 3-2 win for West Brom over Wolves. Loads to chat about today. In part one, we'll talk about Manchester City's victory at Anfield also known as Liverpool's goalless draw with Manchester United, as a cagey affair seems to satisfy both sides playing, but delight those 30 miles away at the Etihad Stadium. In part two, we discuss one of the most talked about teams in the Premier League this season in Leeds. They lost their third straight game on Saturday, but should we be lowering our expectations of Marcelo Bielsa's side? In part three, we have our regional review, as Adam Bate joins us to focus on all things Wolves, plus Leicester and West Brom. And in part four, we answer your Twitter questions. Do Liverpool need an out-and-out striker? Is just one of them. And I'll ask the panel for their performances of the week as well. Now, regular listeners of the show, who usually find us via the Sky Sports Football Podcast umbrella, will be pleased to know you can now subscribe to the Pitch to Post podcast directly, including the preview, review and all of the special episodes. Just search Pitch to Post on your podcast provider and hit subscribe. I'm Jasper Taylor. Alongside me to guide you through all of those issues is Sky Sports senior football writer Gerard Brand and Sky Sports News Northwest reporter Ben Ransom. GB, this incredible season continues. Who would have thought that at this stage, not only would Man United be top, but Liverpool would be fourth. Yeah, and uh, I think we have to mention Leicester within that as well, who are doing a fantastic job. 
uh, particularly Brendan Rodgers. But it's just indicative of this season. Any other season, there'd be a team on late 40s, 50 points. But it's wide open. And I think although the, the top two, the quality of the top two, as we've previously seen, might have dropped and, and they're not pushing those figures we used to see, uh, we've got a proper title race on our hands and uh, it's a great distraction, as we always say, and it's, uh, it should be entertaining. I think as well, Ben, obviously, Manchester United are one of the clubs that you follow very closely on your patch. And we've talked about it multiple times as well. In terms of calendar years in 2020 and post-lockdown when football returned, Manchester United were on very good form and they've arguably been the informed side in the country, perhaps, for quite a while now. Would you agree? I would agree. I mean, it's hard to argue with that. The only other team that would be comparable would be Liverpool, who won the title. And then just post-lockdown, they had such a kind of miserable run once they got over the line, which we understand the reasons why, don't get me wrong. But Manchester United, through that period, were excellent. And their only real blip has been at the start of this season, which I've been on here before, publicly almost apologising for United and City the way they started, just because of the fact they had... Long trips into Europe at the end of last year, didn't have any pre-season. And all of a sudden, we're starting to see both those teams gather some momentum. And lo and behold, if you were going to ask most people across the country who you think is going to win the title, I think United, obviously Liverpool and Man City would be the three that would be very much top of the list. Yeah, it is a great title race. And let's get to our teaser for this week for you guys. And (laughs) just watching all their face drop. Uh, on the Zoom. As I mentioned the teaser, they've forgotten about it clearly. But uh, for all you guys at home as well, listen up. This is the teaser for the week. Mikel Antonio became the fourth player to score 40 Premier League goals for West Ham this weekend as he got the winner. I want you to name, though, the top three players for West Ham who have the most Premier League goals. I can tell you they're on 47, 46 and 41. You will get a clue at the halfway stage and the answer will be revealed at the end of the show, of course. Now, we've already mentioned it briefly, but our first topic is going to be what should have been that huge game between Liverpool and Man United. Uh, They both came away with a point apiece. United, perhaps, with the best chances to win it in the second half. More questions than answers at Anfield, I would say, as both sides look to strike a balance between overcommitting and settling for a point. It made for an interesting spectacle. Liverpool and Manchester United have actually drawn 0-0 at Anfield in the league three times in the last five seasons. Incredibly, that's as many times as in the previous 48 top flight campaigns. Here's what Roy Keane, Graham Souness and both managers made of it. I think Ali should be OK with it, I have to say. I think the progress they made over the last six months... To be, for us to be even discussing it, Man United are top of the table. They've come away from Liverpool with a draw. It's been real progress. Now, can they go? The next part is the hardest part is in terms of staying up there. From a Liverpool perspective, I think the manager will be happy. Given where they are right now, they're sitting third in the league. They know they've not reached the heights that they're capable of or have been in the last three years. He'll be hoping that turns. Um, with all the things which were said before the game, they are flying and we are struggling. I think um, the boys did a really good, played a really good game tonight, my boys. And um, again, it's a good side, good organised side. But first half, we played exceptionally well um, with uh, the way we, we, we kept them under pressure. The, the counter press was great, the passing was good, positioning was good. We didn't score. So we, we know that's the most important thing in football. So we don't, <laughs> we don't, we don't want to miss that, but we missed it. I don't think we played well enough. Uh, we didn't uh, impose ourselves on the game, especially first half. I think we grew in the game. 
into the game and towards the end you felt yeah it's here for us to win and we create two massive chances and two uh, brilliant saves by the keeper so perhaps gents maybe less said about that game the better but I wanted to start by talking about Liverpool's lack of firepower because there is a lot of interesting points coming out of this game as well perhaps not directly on the pitch, but matters that concern form and the different teams and where they are in this stage of the season, because Liverpool have failed to score in any of their last three Premier League matches. That's their longest run since another three-match spell in March 2005. This is a free-scoring, heavy-metal football Liverpool side, Gerard. What's going on? I think it's a combination of things. One, one being the fact that two of their best midfielders are playing in defence, and you lose that in intensity in the middle, but which the front three do feed off. But you know, Klopp said before the game, and he actually talks about this all the time: the idea of being brave in these sorts of games. And what he means by brave in an attacking sense is playing balls through the lines and, and in behind. It's brave because if it doesn't come off, you look wasteful and and. That's why he played Jordan Shakiri on Sunday and also why I think Thiago will be the key to Liverpool winning this title, if indeed they do. These are two players that do that and we're doing that in the first 20 minutes or so at Anfield, feeding Mane, feeding Salah, but then it simply stopped and, and that's credit to Man United. The fear is for Liverpool is, is that Salah and Mane in particular played out of their skin for two years and that they are now perhaps reverting to, a, to more of a level that all the stars aren't aligning for them. And, and 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 they both seem to be forcing things and perhaps trying to do it themselves. Both both Salah and Mane's dribbles per game are up massively since last season. and and But their dribble success is down, particularly Salah's. It's gone from 53% to 38%. And, and that's significant because he's, he's trying to do things himself and he's being met by a wall of defenders. Yes, you know, teams are sitting back on Liverpool more than, than, than ever, but they usually have... I think the intricacy in the box and approaching the box to break these sides down, it's concerning, the lack of goals, but I think it's its indicative of issues all around the pitch. And that fluidity just isn't there, is it, at the moment, for whatever reason. Um, it's, it's two touches instead of one for all the players involved. And I think you've got to look at Firmino's role uh, as being quite important here as well, because... He got a bit of stick, didn't he, again at the weekend? I think Jamie Carrigo, if I remember from commentary, wasn't particularly impressed with that one good chance he had. He kind of mishit it. Your central striker, a player of his calibre, has got to do better than kind of almost scuff it straight at the goalkeeper. In these games, those big moments are, are crucial, aren't they? And it's funny, isn't it? Firmino scores a couple of goals, and then the narrative is always, Jürgen, isn't Firmino great this year? And Jürgen says... You don't have to tell me that. We know how great he is, blah, 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 blah. Why doesn't he get the credit he deserves? Well, you know, we think he's great, blah, 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 blah. And then he'll go for five, six, seven, eight games without a goal. I mean, he scored in the Premier League five goals this season. That is not a fantastic return, is it? So, look, it's, it's something they've got to look at. When it's fluid, when it's working, when Salah and Mane are being clinical, such as the game against Crystal Palace... Perfect. Literally, they are the best attacking unit that we've seen in the Premier League over the last year or so. But when one, two, or even three of those components are not at their absolute best level, then I'm afraid to say there is a little concern because when you don't have, as Gerard says, that midfield of Henderson and Fabinho and that intensity, pulling the strings and being instinctive, something just doesn't feel quite right. What was unusual for me to see, I think, particularly from that game and particularly with Firmino as well, is there seems to be 
a slight lack of confidence at the moment. And this is a side who were top of the Premier League not so long ago and, and still, for many people, the favourites to win it. And it seems to me that there wasn't enough conviction or confidence in a few of the shots that they were taking or, or a few of the passes that they either did make and it didn't come off or that they didn't make that they would have done previously. Uh, but what what is really sort of interesting me the most is that Liverpool's injury problems are well documented this season and the biggest ones are Virgil van Dijk and then arguably Joe Gomez and John Matip. It's, it's their central defence where the injuries are really prominent. But for me, the biggest effect of that isn't on the actual defence. They're defending really quite well and they're not conceding many goals. But the problem for me is that it's meant that Jordan Henderson and Fabinho, arguably their two best central midfielders, are now playing in a different position. So they've it's more the fact that they've been taken away from that midfield than the fact that Virgil van Dijk and Joe Gomez aren't at the back, if that makes sense, Ben. And I think that somehow the defenders being out has actually made Liverpool worse going forward. Would you agree with that? I think you're right on a number of levels. And there's another element to this. This is only my own observation and whether anyone can help with the, the stats to back this up. But certainly when I've watched Liverpool, you don't see the same cavalier approach that you would have seen from Trent Alexander-Arnold on one side and Andy Robertson on, on the other side because they have got so many assists between them. That's what we've been talking about over the last couple of years, just how offensive they are. They spend their whole time almost pegs just on the outside, the opposition's box, just in that attacking third. They've got the pace to get back when required, but they always knew that if a team was going to break quickly on them, the likes of Van Dijk would be able to mop it up. And I just feel that their attacking instincts is just being negated just slightly, whether they're having to sit a little bit deeper, whether they're having just to check a little bit more, or just because naturally perhaps they're slightly more uncertain about being hit on a counter. They don't seem to be quite at the top of their game either because so many goals, as I say, came from those areas when this Liverpool team was absolutely firing. And you're right. I mean, Jordan Henderson, you cannot underestimate his influence in the middle of midfield. That he's, The way he gets around, the way he rallies the troops, you want your leader right bang in the middle of your team. And at the moment, he's been asked to fill in in a position where he's completely unsuited. I mean, if you'd have looked at Jordan Henderson from five years ago and said he's going to have to fill in at centre-half for the Premier League champions, everyone would have thought you'd be mad. To be fair to him, he's done a pretty good job because he's such a good footballer, because he's such a good communicator. But you're right, they have lost something from that midfield and from the overall approach of their attacking play for me. I think what I'd add here, I'm just going to put my positive hat on for Liverpool. It's clear Liverpool have issues, probably in most areas of the pitch, apart from goalkeeper right now. But they're still in touch. You know, if you're a glass half full kind of person, which Jurgen Klopp certainly is, you're probably looking at your situation and thinking, our look with injuries has been horrendous, yet we're still set up to win the league. I think given the circumstances and and how they are likely to improve with Joel Matip returning imminently and Jota in the future, you're probably satisfied if if you're Liverpool. Because in previous seasons, it would have been over. They've got 34 points. In 2019, there would have been 10 off the lead. 2018, there would have been 18 off the lead. And the year before that, there would have been 12 off the lead. As it happens, they're three off it. Four if, if City win their game in hand. It's not all doom and gloom. And, and, and as, a, as I said, when, when Matip returns, and, and Klopp says it should be in the next couple of days, Fabinho and or Jordan Henderson will return to midfield, meaning that the front three should, should, should have more to feast off. And then it's like a positive chain reaction should start. So... 
yeah, there's issues there, but but they're still in touch, and and that's the main thing. Mm. Yeah, I think it's it's hard to underestimate the role that Henderson plays in that midfield. I think for for Liverpool, and I'm just thinking as well. As soon as they get those defenders back, I mean, they started against Man United with a midfield three of Shakiri, Thiago, and Wijnaldum. And what I always looked for in Liverpool's midfield or any midfield in the Premier League, which has been very successful, is a balance. And I don't think those three players offer that same balance. They're all fairly attacking minded. I think probably for most Liverpool fans and for Klopp himself, the ideal midfield three is Fabinho as the most defensive, Henderson slightly ahead of him, who's essentially making everything tick, the engine in the middle, and then probably Thiago. Uh, alongside him or slightly push further forward to make those front three tick and just be completely released to do whatever he likes. And then that means that they've got the likes of Wijnaldum, Shakiri, Naby Keita, if or when he's fit, Curtis Jones to come off the bench. And then you're looking, in my opinion, at a very, very strong side. But at the moment, because of these injuries, they simply can't, they can't get to that point. And that's what's making this, this, season so exciting as well because United are top they're unbeaten in their last 16 away matches in the Premier League you know you can't argue that they deserve to be there only once in fact have they gone longer without defeat on the road in the top flight that was 17 games in 99 so again we're seeing Ole Gunnar Solskjaer potentially breaking a record as a, a Man United manager they will I think clearly be the happier of the two sides with this result going to Anfield and getting a point but Ben do you think that they actually could have taken advantage a bit more of that Liverpool side because there were points there where it looked like they were there for the taking. And I'd actually argue on balance, United were probably the team that had the better chances. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to contend with you straight away. I don't know if they are the happier team after this, honestly. I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, the one thing you've got to give him credit for is he comes from that school of Manchester United under Sranix Ferguson, which was all about no excuses, we go and we try and win. And we try and win titles. And he knows what it takes to get to that level. And I think he senses a little bit of an opportunity. And he did sense an opportunity yesterday. Now, don't get me wrong. In these big games, I mean, goodness me, you mentioned the stat at the very top of the podcast. The joke going into this match was, oh, prepare yourselves for a nil-nil. And sure enough, that's what happened. Now, it wasn't as bad as some of the nil-nils we've seen. But there's so much to lose in these big games at this stage of the season as well, because it's so tight. There's more to be lost than to be gained. So I absolutely understand why teams always just have maybe just, you know, maybe just have one eye on the back and just making sure they're solid. But look, I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer felt this was a real opportunity. And I did honestly believe him after the game when he came out and he said, I'm disappointed we couldn't do more because say Pogba takes that chance. They, they've won Anfield for the first time in a long time in a title race anyway. And that would have been a massive moment for them. And they know for well, for them to win the title, it's going to take big results because City are coming up on the rails. Gerrard was spot on. Liverpool are going to get better. There's no doubt about that. It's going to go to the wire. The thing that made this game exciting was the fact that so much was at stake. A goal either way makes a massive swing in the title race. From here on in in the season, let's not forget, we're at the business end. All of those moments matter. I think it's fair to say then that no denying that City are the real winners this weekend, GB. Yeah. Ruthless against Crystal Palace just an hour or so after seeing that result at Anfield. They rightly favourites now, do you think? Yeah, yeah. If you're looking at current form, then yes, they are rightly favourites right now. I mean, I've talked about what positive things might be around the corner for Liverpool earlier, and I believe those positive things will happen. But 
you know, they're not nailed on. They might get another serious injury to another key player. We don't know. But looking at the fixtures, City could actually be six or seven clear of Liverpool. Not insurmountable by any stretch, but a really good position to be in. They go four clear if they win their, their game in hand against Villa. And then it's West Brom, Sheffield United and Burnley, while Liverpool have got to go to Spurs and West Ham in, in, their, in their bunch of coming games where they could really drop points. But but even then, you're in early February and, and Liverpool play City at Anfield on, on February 6th, which is looking huge. And I've said this before, I, th- I think the way people wrote City off after that Manchester derby was really short-sighted and, and, and Pep's got the bit between his teeth again. And I do believe United will fade. So, so I do think we're on for another Liverpool City title race. City have this way of mesmerising us, I think, as we look to predict where the titles go in, the way they see off some teams, the way they play, you know, the De Bruyne factor. I think we have this tendency of just saying, oh, that's over then, you know, City are back, that's it. Uh, but I'd, I'd be careful with that as well, because throughout this entire season, we've only seen spurts of four to five week periods of form from from any side. And and then it falls flat. And that's across the whole Premier League. And I really think it's going gonna, it's gonna to sway back and forth this season. But I'll put City and Liverpool up there at the top. It's interesting that you think United will fade. I, I don't see them fading in this title race, actually. I think that they're going to take it all the way. And we haven't even mentioned Leicester as well, which I know we'll talk about with Adam Bate later on in the show. But they are certainly worth a mention in this title race, Leicester. You know, they are well up there in third place. They're ahead of Liverpool and they're only two points off top as well. Ben, where do you see this title race heading? I mean, it's impossible to call week to week even, but where are you seeing it at the moment? At the moment, I think that you've got to say City. The momentum's with City and I've watched, don't forget, this Manchester City team really closely over the last three or four years. And the two title races, in particular, the second title they won under Guardiola when they came from behind to beat Liverpool... This was the kind of swing we saw. They were a long way behind Liverpool. Then they went on a massive run of winning games and they just slowly but surely pegged Liverpool back. And let's not forget, that wasn't down to Liverpool injuries. That was just the pressure of City, just boom, 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 boom. Win, 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 win. They've now won eight in a row in all competitions. Within that, they had maybe three or four games where we thought, oh, hang on, the fluidity is back. They're scoring goals. De Bruyne is looking at his best. Sterling, to this point, has not been at his best. He is the sort of player that can kick on and have a fantastic month or two. And and that's what's so exciting, I think, about City at the moment, the way they're playing. They looked at the weekend to have that fluidity again, which when they're in that form, that's when they are irresistible. Suddenly, they've got a striker back in Jesus. If they can keep him fit, focal point, he'll get you a few goals, yes, but it's what else he brings to that structure of the attack. They've got now so many options. I mean, Diaz and Stones look exceptional at the back as a partnership. They've got Cancelo has been brilliant. He was, you know, he effectively had a rest at the weekend. Carl Walker came back in. At the start of the season, Walker was one of the players of the season, if you remember. So all of a sudden, they've got lots of players in lots of positions. Ilkay Gundogan, absolutely brilliant. He's made that role as the third midfielder, his own at the moment. So all of a sudden, there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of options. They've had some injuries themselves. They've got players fit. They've had a lot of COVID cases. They've got those players back now. Everything we know about COVID suggests they're not going to catch it again in the next few months. So, look, I think there's a lot to be excited about that. I don't think it's done deal. Don't get me wrong. I can equally see them having a couple of iffy results. But those games, and in particular, that match against Liverpool in February just looks absolutely knockout. Cannot wait for that. Yeah, interesting time. Really interesting time for Liverpool fans as well. We'd love to know what you think here on the podcast because... 
as well. I'm just looking at the table and Everton, two points behind with a game in hand over Liverpool. So uh, interesting (laughs) times on Merseyside. Coming up later in the show, we'll be talking all things Midlands, as I mentioned in our regional review with Adam Bates. That will be focusing mainly on Wolves' drop in form. But after the break, we look at Leeds. They lost for the third straight game in all competitions, their sixth defeat in nine. That's coming right up. The live Premier League action keeps coming for you here on Sky Sports. On Tuesday, we've got a huge game between Leicester and Chelsea. On Thursday, it's the champions Liverpool looking to bounce back from a run of poor results as they take on Burnley. And then on Saturday, it's the rearranged fixture between Aston Villa and Newcastle. Coverage of all three of those games begins at half past seven. Right, let's get to topic two now. And it is Leeds. Three defeats in a row in all competitions after they lost 1-0 at home to Brighton this weekend. Gerard, where are we sitting with this? Are we witnessing a slump in form? Is it something more concerning or do we need to be more realistic with Leeds? I think it depends which way you look at it and who you are, of course. I don't think Leeds fans are concerned. You know, it's nine defeats in 15 or, or six defeats in nine, but it's also three wins in six in the Premier League. So it depends how, how you look at it. And, and the bottom line is, They're on 23 points after 18 games as a promoted side. That's well over target and and we mustn't forget that. But Leeds being Leeds, there's a lot of attention on them. I think, I really do think there's one half of football that loves the way Bielsa plays and another half that thinks it's naive and and almost hipster. And and they almost want to put Leeds in their place. I really do think that. And uh, this is no disrespect to West Brom or, or Fulham, the promoted sides, but people see Leeds as one of, the, uh, one of the biggest sides in England and with a manager who was shortlisted for World Boss of the Year and, and, and therefore its expectation of them is slightly higher. You know, they see them attack sides, never sitting back and, and they're a bit of an enigma. And I think Leeds fans are just getting used to that attention and maybe they expect Leeds to be marked next to your West Broms and Fulhams. But that's difficult when you're as entertaining as they are and when the attention is on you so much. But... They were really bad against Brighton, probably their worst performance of the season. But this sort of mid-season slump is, is actually is actually common at Leeds. It's happened before for Bielsa's sides. In, in 2019, they won just two of eight around this period, January, February. And similarly, last season, they won just two of 12 around this period. They, they've got a good break now of 10 days to reset. But overall, I think, Jasper, this is an expectation issue, both within Leeds and also within the neutrals. Does that mean then, Ben, there's not maybe specific problems on the pitch at the moment? I mean, that game against Brighton, I'm not even sure the term unmarked sums up how free Neil Mope was just outside the six-yard box for that winner. That That's almost what you would say is unforgivable defending. I mean, it's unbelievable when you see it. I think it's fair to say problems on the pitch, problems with the pitch, because the pitch itself was pretty horrible, wasn't it? Even that's given up in January. Um, yeah, look, with Mope, it was one of those moments, wasn't it? I mean, Luke Eiling, I'm afraid to say, is not a central defender. He's not played um, at central defence in a Premier League season before. He's had to step in and fill in. He's obviously very versatile. He's got the height and the stature for it. But, you know, he's been a marauding fullback for the last couple of years. So... It's tough for him. And look, he was oblivious to more pay. That's what happens in the Premier League. In the Championship or whatever, you sometimes get away with things like that, don't you? The Premier League is just more ruthless. So whereas Leeds one week can be ruthless and carve teams apart, 
the day they miss a few chances and defensively they have a few lapses, that's when I'm afraid they get punished. And that's what's happened. Brighton showed a bit of nous. Um, I think special mention for Ben White as well, because in the summer, don't forget, he wanted to go back to Leeds. Of course he did. You know, the, he was so popular in that dressing room. I think he he really felt that that would have been a great move for him. Back to Leeds, hero in this kind of new era of Leeds United in the Premier League, um, pushing on up the table, exciting football with a load of uh, teammates and a manager that he obviously had a lot of time for and had a lot of success with. So then to be denied that move when he was told by Brighton, well, no, hang on, we think you're a good player. Stick around here. I can imagine would have been difficult, but he went into that game really positive. I mean, it wasn't wasn't just his defensive work. He was marauding forward with the ball, wasn't he? I mean, he really wanted to show everyone how good a player he was. And um, given his affection for Leeds, I was slightly surprised by that, but it just shows what what a man he was and what what Brighton were able to achieve there. I do think it's concerned their results. I don't, still don't think Leeds are going to be in danger of going down. So I think in that respect, it's been a relatively positive season. They'll learn a lot from this, but they do need to get back to winning ways and they do need to rediscover that fluidity. Their defending's not been as good as it has been, but when they're at their best, that doesn't necessarily matter. They always give up big chances. What they do is they keep the ball, they create so many chances themselves and they score goals. When that second bit is starting to just go off the boil a little bit, everything starts to fall down, doesn't it? So they do need this break. I think it's really helpful for them and I think we will see them get back to something like their best in the next few weeks. Because yeah, we were very used to seeing them as this free-scoring, entertaining side. They actually haven't scored in any of those last three defeats, GB. That includes against a League Two side with that FA Cup defeat by Crawley, which was a strong Leeds team as well. A lot of changes, but it was still strong. I've seen this week, maybe inevitably, the club being linked to various different strikers in the transfer market. Do you think they need to get someone in? Is that the answer? Well, it's- the, the, the attacking areas is, is something I'll discuss, but the, and they are struggling for depth. They've had to play players out of position, particularly in defence. You know, injuries to Robin Cock, Liam Cooper, Diego Lorente. And I'm not convinced Bielsa has actually been able to play his strongest side this season. But we talk about a lack of pre season for other clubs, but I think it was really felt acutely at Leeds in particular. Ben mentioned the pitch. They were meant to relay it, and that takes 14 weeks. They've got an undersaw there that's 25 years old and they really need to change it because the pitch I think it impacted their play on Saturday but you know if they had a pre-season you know this isn't to say that Bielsa would have altered his style massively but if they'd had a longer pre-season maybe Leeds would have sort of shelled up and prepared themselves more for the huge difference in challenge that the Premier League brings and that's why I think this 10-day gap is really is really good for them but in terms of depth I just want to thank a Twitter user called uh Leeds fan from Fulham uh, at SW6 Leeds, who, who kindly pointed out to me on Twitter that nine players who played in their championship defeat by QPR nearly two years ago, they played on Saturday against Brighton. And it would have been 10 if Calvin Phillips had been fit. So I think that does show how well Leeds and Bielsa have actually done with what are essentially, or they at least were originally, championship players. But also that begs the question about how they develop their side going forward against Premier League oppositions who 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 often sit deep now and we mentioned the strikers being linked with the club Patrick Bamford I think in particular seems to struggle against the lesser sides who make it compact and give him little room to operate and I'm not sure Leeds fans know exactly what record signing Rodrigo's role actually is although he has shown 
spurts of technical quality. So, yeah, there's room for improvement. They are impressive. They are naive too, but they can be all of these things. They don't just have to be one. But I think our expectation of Leeds it can drop slightly. Yeah, I think that's a very, very good point about the championship side as well and how many players they've they've kept in that team as well, Gerard. I mean, the extent of your football knowledge never fails to impress me, but knowing... <laughs> The age of the undersoil at Leeds United, I think, is potentially a new high for you. Um, <laughs> they've only won consecutive games twice this season, Ben. Do you think that's the nature of just how Bielsa plays football? No side has drawn fewer times than Leeds this season. They've got two draws. So it's sort of like, and we saw this from the very start of the season, it's all or nothing, really. First of all, I'd just like to say no excuses then, really, because if the pitch has played in the Premier League before, it should have been perfectly... <laughs> <laughs> it's got experience. Um, that must have seen some great European nights. Um, look, no, sorry. Um, yeah, look, they have to get some sort of consistency. You're right. They have to, they have to find a way of winning back-to-back matches in the Premier League more often. They have to... I don't know what it is about going into a Leeds game, but you you don't know. And it must be, it's probably what Gerald was on about, that like the gung-ho style versus the naivety versus the excitement. You never, you just don't know what you're going to get. And actually, it's good for the Premier League, isn't it? I mean, we all enjoy looking at Leeds. We enjoy watching Leeds. I mean, I, I'd love to know how their fans feel about it though. You know, the diehard fans, because I know I'm like as a football fan. I'm so gloomy around my own team. I go into every match thinking, oh God, here we go again. Even when you're on a good run of form, oh God, we're going to get beaten. And, when your team's playing consistently, we've all supported teams where there's been a run of games in whatever season we've followed where your team's actually been doing well. You start to get, you start to really enjoy that consistency. When it's a usual season, oh, it's horrible, isn't it? And I, I don't know. I don't know what these fans think genuinely about what they see from their team. Are they loving it like the rest of us are watching on? Or are some of them just head in hands thinking, this is our chance to shine and we keep blowing it every other game? I don't know. Well, what, Gerard, what did you see from the Twitter reaction to, to something we put out? Because I think this is an important point as well. Like We have to keep this into perspective. They've, they've come up, they've been promoted, and already you would say they look pretty safe. Uh, I don't think many Leeds fans will fear the drop this season. So what, what did you find from those potential social media reactions, uh, GB? Um, Keeping it clean, of course. Yeah, I mean, I won't repeat all of them. Um, but, it, I mean, football is tribal. That, that goes without saying. And, and Leeds fans are tribal. They're, they're, they've got some of the best, most passionate fans in the country. I've seen that watching Leeds play Villa over the years. It's, it's, they're some of the best fans I've ever seen at Villa Park. And they're passionate and, and they believe that, that their team have let's say, an acute amount of attention on them at the moment. And that that comes with the territory of being Leeds, you know, they're one of the biggest teams in, in, in England. But, yeah, we need, to be, we need to be more realistic. I think, I do think there are people, fans in particular, who see this style of play from this manager who is shortlisted for manager of the year, maybe deservedly, maybe not. People like his style of play. It's very, very brave. But they see that and I think they want to put Leeds in their place, particularly when they lose. I think there's a lot of people who want to see Leeds lose, a lot of fans who want to see Leeds lose. And I think we need to be realistic um, because I think among among the most passionate Leeds fans, they think they're doing absolutely fine because you look at the Premier League table, they are. 
They're doing very well. Uh, but my fear is going forward, how they work in the transfer market, how they develop their team, other players they bring in, are they going to want to work in Bielsa's style of play? Because it takes a specific player to do that. My fear is for the future, not for now. Yeah, and let's not forget, they're only a point behind Arsenal as well, which I think <laughs> um, satisfies fans too. Um, right, as you can tell, we, we want to get in touch with you guys, you listeners, more on social media. And later in the show, I'll be putting your questions to GB and Ben. Next up, though, we'll be talking all things Midlands with Sky Sports feature writer Adam Bay in our regional review. But before that... Let's get to a teaser clue, because I asked you, after Mikel Antonio became the fourth player to score 40 Premier League goals for West Ham at the weekend, who are their top three scorers? How are we feeling about this one, GB? Is this easy or hard? I've got a short list of four <laughs> so far. Okay. Uh, ben? <laughs> I've only got a couple. Um, I'm, I mean, I've got to be certain on one, have I? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I can't okay. be certain on any. Can't be certain on any. That's a, this is a really good one. Score. I've seen so many players score against Charlton for West Ham. I can't really. <laughs> Some of them will be right. I think I'll give you. I think I'll give you a clue here, which will help quite a lot. Uh, one of the players is still at the club. Uh huh. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's your clue at halfway. And for everyone listening at home, answer at the end of the show. Hi, I'm Warwick Davis, and you may know me as the little fella off the telly, but I'm also big in business. Listen to my new podcast series, Figureheads, where I chat to sporting trailblazers, dance revolutionaries, and entertainment innovators, finding out how they navigated their business through some extraordinary events and situations. You'll pick up useful skills and tips from the most unlikely of places. All brought to you by Barclay Card Business. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you're listening to, why not check out some of the other podcasts Sky Sports has to offer, including the Gary Neville podcast, the EFL podcast and Off Script. For a full listing, please visit the Sky Sports website. Okay, next then to our regional review. Each week we focus on one area of the country. Today we head to the Midlands with SkySports.com feature writer Adam Bates. Adam, welcome to the show yet again. We had a Midlands derby this weekend. Adam, a bit of a shock result, I think, for many. Wolves losing 3-2 to West Brom. Wolves now without a win in six in the league. That's over a month. What's going wrong? Well, yeah, that's the big question. There's... um... I think there's lots of little reasons for it. They're unlikely to be convincing on their own, but I think they add up to the sense that this is no longer a team that's kind of playing better than the sum of its parts, which I think is what Wolves were over the last two years, finishing seventh twice in a row. They had a settled side. They knew their system. They stuck to it. People knew their jobs, where they had to be on the pitch, what their passing options were, what runs were required. And they had some very good players, of course, but, There's obviously lots of very good players in the Premier League. I think Wolves Edge came from the fact that they had these relationships and this understanding. And uh, yeah, bit by bit, piece by piece, that's been eroded to the point on Saturday where you looked at Wolves and it looked like it was a a 4-3-3 that any manager could have sort of thrown together in a week's notice, you know. And it it isn't that Wolves system anymore, that 3-4-3, 3-5-2. I don't think it suits the players. I know there's, there's a feeling in the autumn that Wolves needed to evolve and perhaps they added some good attacking players who were being a little bit shackled by the defensive structure and that if, you know, Neto, Traore and Pedence were just unleashed, then Wolves had more to offer 
than some of the results they were picking up. But I think what's become clear in the last month is that when they do open up, they're actually more likely to concede goals than score them. And uh, yeah, I think it's telling that the only game they've won since the Arsenal game when Raul Jimenez was injured was a last-minute counter-attacking goal against Chelsea when they did play a back five. So yeah, I, I think I, I don't see relegation, this struggle happening just yet, but I think they do need to get back to those basics. Hi, Adam. It's Ben. Um, just looking at Nuno, the shots of him on the bench, he looked like he had a lot to ponder. And you've spoken there about him trying to change and evolve the style this year with some new personnel that are coming as well. But the, the form is pretty worrying, isn't it? Two points from the last 18 available without a clean sheet in 12 Premier League games now, the longest ongoing run among sides currently in the division. So is that pressure now starting to mount? I mean, how much does Nuno fancy this, do you think? Well, I mean, the, the pressure from who, do you mean supporters or the owners? I mean, supporters, I think it's safe to say they'd have been booed off at the weekend and there, there are fans on social media very annoyed, but that's uh, calling for his head, but that's social media for you, I guess. Uh, when it comes to the owners, I think it's interesting. I mean, it'd be very easy for me to say that Nuno is absolutely kind of embedded in the club. He signed a new contract only recently and, and that he has the complete trust of Jeff Shee, the, the uh, man in charge there. I think that's all probably true, but... The reason I think there's a major caveat to that is that until the last month or so, Nuno's had it very easy. He's made it easy for the owners to trust him, hasn't he? He's, he's given them no real reason to doubt him. And uh, so we don't really know how patient the owners are when it comes to, to sort of the demands on him. What, what do we know? That they got rid of Kenny Jacket immediately. They sacked Walter Zenger after 87 days. Paul Lambert lasted seven months. So when they aren't happy, they do act. But I don't think we're at that point yet unless... Uh, Unless they lose to Chorley on Friday, which would be uh, a hell of a result. <laughs> I want to pick up on something that you alluded to in your first answer there, Adam. Just the one win over Chelsea since Raul Jimenez suffered that awful injury against Arsenal, which was a the game they also won, of course. Is that downturn in form, do you think, a coincidence? Or do you think there's a potential lack of depth that Wolves at the moment? Yeah, it's, it's not a coincidence. And I think I've given quite longer answers to these but I think if you were giving a shorthand answer a quick answer then I you wouldn't be far wrong if you said that losing Raheem Jimenez has been really significant and the lack of depth has been a problem I think if everything else at Wolves had stayed exactly the same and they just introduced Fabio Silva for Raheem Jimenez then absolutely performances would have still suffered massively I think it's one of the bigger disparities between two players actually and certainly outfield players in the Premier League, I'd say, if you get an injury. I mean, I know there's players like Zaha and Grealish. If they got injured, then a lesser player comes in. But I think the gap between Fabio Silva and Raul Jimenez is huge. And you replace one of the best, most complete strikers in the league with an 18-year-old kid who's struggling to show that he's a top-level footballer right now. Um, but I, I, the, the issue I have is that it isn't that kind of control experiment where nothing else has changed. I think other elements of the team have changed. And uh, I think the bigger issue is, that I think to go back to the pressure on Nuno, I think the biggest problem is that he's committed to this change of system, this evolution. He said after the game against West Brom that he feels this system suits the players. I don't see that it suits Connor Cody in a back four. I don't see it suits Roman Saiz at left back. I think the, the they're better at wing back than full back, the two uh, the wide options. And uh, yeah, I think... I understood why, just to sort of go off topic a little bit, but I understood why he substituted Connor Cody late on against West Brom. He wanted to bring on a more attacking left-back and keep Saiz on the pitch for the aerial threat. But I think it was kind of symbolic 
that this this team that's kind of functioned like clockwork and didn't always win but always looked super organised. They're then sort of taking off their sort of captain, the bedrock in in what the supporters would say is the biggest game of the season. It was kind of that moment where you realised this has become a little bit messy now. So yeah, just that one loss of a striker coupled with multiple other factors. And uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it'd be an exaggeration to say it'd be lower than when they lost to Chorley in 1986 in the FA Cup if they lose on Friday. But uh, yeah, the season's <laughs> on a knife edge for sure. <laughs> Adam Gerrard here. Sam Allardyce's first win since taking charge at West Brom. It's the first win since November, actually. Is, is there a sort of renewed sense of optimism there now among Albion fans that they, that they might be able to stay up? Well, a big win for sure. And yeah. uh, just at the point, I think, when fans were kind of already giving up, weren't there? Shades of Alan Pardew last time around in the Premier League, if they kept losing, it would have sapped the belief. This obviously changes that, doesn't it? And I think uh, I think it changes it for the players as much as the fans, would, would you say? I mean, to, sort of, to score three goals, I know there were two penalties, but for one of them to be from a long throw as well, I think it just gives that little bit of belief that what the manager is telling them will work if they just buy into it. And uh, I think there's still problems. You think of the two goals conceded, you don't really see those kind of goals in the Premier League very often. I think Allardyce will know that he's going to need to buy well in the next fortnight. But uh, you look at the table, there's still only a couple of wins now from getting themselves out of this. They're not four wins from safety like Sheffield United. And uh, there's definitely hope, I think. Let's look at the other end of the table for a moment then, Adam. Leicester third, unbeaten in five now after that 2-0 win over Southampton. They're two points off top and something we've discussed already is that they're a point ahead of Liverpool, having played the same number of games this season. Do you get the impression, though, that the club actually feel like they're part of this title challenge? Because not as many people are talking about them as the likes of the Manchester clubs and Liverpool. Yeah, it's so uh, so congested, isn't it? I did see Roy Keane saying he thinks they're in the title race uh, on Sky Sports. And you look at the table and they are there. I think it's Chelsea game on Tuesday, isn't it? And I think they're... They're kind of in better form than Chelsea. They can open up a, a nine-point gap if they win that. So I think for Leicester, progress is top four in Champions League, which they kind of, what fans will feel they should have had that last season. But there's a chance to correct that. And uh, if they if they went nine points clear of Chelsea, I think it's then like a really strong chance for for top four, isn't it? You, they'll fancy they're a better team than Southampton, Everton, West Ham, and Villa. So they'd kind of be in a five-horse race with. Uh, with the sort of four favourites, you'd say. And if you're in a five-horse race for the top four, you're you're in with a good chance, aren't you? So it's really just top four for you at the moment, Adam. I mean, you can see that game live on Sky Sports against Chelsea. And, and if they do win that, why aren't they thinking, you know, with this season, this could be our title again? Yeah, maybe. I think what happened last season, would that just temper expectations a little bit? Of a potential fade. I, look, I think Brendan might believe that he can do it. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly do. I, I I just think from my personal view would be that Man City are looking very strong, and I think they don't. Leicester would want to have a big advantage at this stage, I would say. But yeah, yeah. I mean they're in it, absolutely. But a, a lot of teams will think they're in it, won't they? Yeah, I guess so. It'll be interesting to see the next couple of weeks or so who continues to, to push forward. And if Man City continues to get the wins, then perhaps they will uh, tear ahead in this title race slightly. But Adam, thank you very much for joining us to talk all things Midlands. Coming up after the break, for the first time, we'll be answering your Twitter questions and be getting to the performances of the week and revealing the teaser answer as well, of course. Stay tuned. 
now to our final section of today's podcast and we put a call out on Sunday evening for questions for this episode from you the listeners as you might imagine we've had a mix of responses on Twitter but we do have some questions that we can read out Gerard we'll start with you uh, from uh, John Leach this one he wants to know why can't assistant referees stick up their flag when a player is obviously offside and I think this is probably following the uh, Liverpool Man United game where we saw Marcus Rashford multiple occasions particularly in that first half in a very offside position but (laughs) the attack continuing for quite a long time they mentioned it in commentary what's your view on it? Yeah, I mean, Rashford was was in an offside position for most of uh, that first half. But yeah, I think it's just the latest thing that, that fans are getting uh, outraged about. There's been a lot of outrage about this and as if it's something that was that was brought into the rules yesterday, which I'm constantly surprised at, given at how long it has been around. But I think if you weigh things up, it's still the right thing to do. People talk about a risk of injury. I mean, that is extremely minimal in comparison to the risk of stopping play when a player is is onside and can score a goal. You know, decisions that seem clear on a replay, even by three or four yards, they don't always seem that clear in real life. And and even we look at one replay and think, oh, he's onside, and then look at another and think, oh, he's actually offside. So it's really difficult. I mean, <laughs> quite regularly in, in the football circle, fans, pundits, players, managers, they find something to be outraged about and, and, and that doesn't really matter. And I think this falls into that category for me. It's a matter of seconds. I mean, the real problem here is is VAR as a whole, but let's not let's not get into that today. It's a VAR. <laughs> you know, thank you. You know the rules, GB. VAR free zone on this podcast. Okay, next up from the fantastically named I Dunk Biscuits on Twitter, and they want to know what do West Ham need to do to score more than one goal a game. Ben, they've been winning narrowly recently, haven't they? The latest a 1-0 win over Burnley on Saturday. What do you think? Take their chances. <laughs> no, it's simple as that, is it? They played well. Um, joking aside, against Burnley, I was covering that game. Um, after the match, I think David Moyes was a little bit unhappy with me for not being overly positive about them. I didn't mean to be. Um, so, David, <laughs> first of all, an on-record apology. I thought they played really well. and I thought it was a really good win. And I think they're in a great run of form. Um, I think they... They're getting results, and this is the thing about this West Ham team. You've got to remember, it wasn't that long ago they weren't getting results, were they? You know, rewind the clock to before Moyes had to come back in and save them again. They were really struggling. You know, they had this ambition to be this free-flowing, stylish football team, challenging in Europe, according to the owners, and they've been at the bottom end of the Premier League. So the difference now is he is building something, and one of those things is a solidity. One of those things is momentum. And one of those things is the fact they can win games because they've won three in a row in all competitions. I think having Mikel Antonio fit is massive for them because he offers something completely different. When he plays, he runs the channels. He occupies central defenders. He makes space for all those creative players behind, the likes of Jared Bowen, Fornals, Lanzini, Benrahma when, when he plays. And those players are the really, they're the creative sparks that when they start scoring, West Ham will score more goals. For them to do that, I think they need Antonio. Haller was way too static. He's now gone. Old news. Keep Antonio fit. Score more goals. Okay, there you go. Simple as that. So I hope that answers uh, the question for you at I Dunk Biscuits. Let's move on to Tom Addis Scott. One for you, Gerard, this one, I think. Do Liverpool need an out-and-out striker? 
This is a really interesting question. And, and I assume uh, Tom means an out-and-out striker in the mould of, of an Edinson Cavani or an Olivier Giroud. And I actually agree with this, uh, particularly because in recent games, Liverpool have been searching for a winner late on, where, you know, balls from wide and deep into the box are more prevalent. I think I think Divock Origi is looked on fondly by Liverpool fans. He scored two against Barcelona in that Champions League semi, he scored in the final. He scored that last minute goal even against Everton a couple of years ago, uh, a couple of years back. But right now, I'm not sure if he offers exactly what they want in the final 15 minutes of games. Amazingly, he's only 25, so it feels like he's been around forever. So there is time to improve him on that. But an out and out striker, I think, is something I think Liverpool would benefit from. However, you know, it won't happen because I think it goes completely against their transfer policy. You know, these type of players are usually around around 30 and have very big wages and, and probably won't start for Liverpool. So that's it's really difficult. But Tom, I I agree, if that's your stance on it as well, that, that Liverpool do actually need an out-and-out striker or, or that extra option. I think it would have added a couple of points to their tally this season. Are you saying that, that most of these players are around 30 and that, that the out-and-out striker ceasing to exist anymore that's that's probably what i'm inferring they they tend to be how do i put this they tend to be uh big they tend to be on big wages they've dotted around a few clubs i mean liverpool haven't been linked with olivia Giroud. i don't think chelsea would let him go anywhere near liverpool but a player of that mold and cavani they they Mm. do cost a lot of money and they are becoming a bit of a rarity now but they're very very necessary particularly late in games where you know, tactics go out the window a little bit and uh, it is about getting it in the box. I don't think Liverpool should be uh, should be uh, turning their nose up at that. Tell you someone who would fit the mould, Raul Jimenez. I'm sure uh-huh. there's been some some chat about, you know, how, how he could perform that role for Liverpool before they went in for his teammate Jota as well. But that seems to be the type of player that, that Tom is perhaps suggesting that Liverpool could benefit from. Um, right, well, thank you very much for your questions. Uh, remember, you can ask us the question using the hashtag pitch to post and we'll answer the best on next week's podcast as well. But now let's get to the performer and the performance of the weekend. We'll uh, add goal of the weekend to that as well, I think, this week. Ben, you go first. OK, um, well, in that case, you've thrown goal in and that has definitely made my decision easier because I'm going to just stick all from the same game, the same performance and the closest team in the Premier League to where I'm sat right now. Man City. Um, they showed a fluidity. Yes, they were playing Crystal Palace without Wilfred Zaha, but they tore them apart, really. And in terms of overall team performance, I thought they were fantastic. In terms of individual performance, De Bruyne has a massive shout here, but I'm giving it to John Stones because, as you know, I've been a huge fan of what he's done this year coming back. He's had all those niggly injuries. He's had the uh, the doubt, I suppose, of Pep Guardiola for a while. He's had competition for places in someone like Heinrich Laporte and Ruben Diaz coming in and Nathan Aki coming in. Yet, he's proved he deserves his place in the team. When he's played for City, they've looked a lot better defensively. That partnership with Diaz is brilliant. He's 26, and he feels like he's been around forever. And all of a sudden, you're thinking, hang on, if he can stay fit as an Englishman at 26, he's coming into the prime of his career as a central defender. So it's only right, really, that he starts to be better defensively and cut out some of the errors, which I suppose had been the criticism levelled at him in the past. I think... He deserves a lot of credit for what he's done this season and scoring two goals. I mean, fair play to him. Fantastic. So Man City, John Stones, 
Goal, I'm giving it to Raheem Sterling for that free kick. It was absolutely fantastic. The way he tried to outdo Gundogan was just brilliant. GB, I don't know which club you're currently closest to, uh, where you're sitting, but who are you going to go for? I am closest to... Uh, that's a really good question. I think I'm closest to QPR here. Don't come knocking at my door. Um, <laughs> Luke Shaw gets it for me for performer. I think even before his injury in November, I think Shaw was United's best defender for a month. And, and if he's not their best defender now, he's certainly most improved this season. I think he sort of represented the post-Fergie United at one point for me, a bit of an expensive flop, but he's been he's been solid this season, maybe helped by a kick up the, the backside in United signing Alex Tellers in the summer, but he stopped Mo Salah in a way I haven't seen many fullbacks do before. So he was rightly man of the match and I think his delivery can improve, but amazingly, he's only 25 and nowhere near his peak. So a good news story for an English left-back as well as a centre-back in stones. Uh, Performance-wise, got to mention Leicester, who they sort of swept aside a very good Southampton side 2-0 without too much bother at all. You know, Special mentions to Harvey Barnes and James Justin, who, who have both really improved this season. And yet another example of players being coached brilliantly by Brendan Rodgers, who I think is the best British manager since Fergie retired and and even that downplays it. I think he's among the best in, in Europe and the goal, it's got to be in Dombele for me. I think there's only one winner. I did question whether he meant it, that sort of loop. Very, very rare that we see a goal like that, but uh, I've seen it enough times to be convinced that he did mean it. So yeah, and Dombele gets the goal, Leicester the performance and uh, Luke Shaw, the performer. Yeah, you're preaching to the converted about Brendan Rodgers and just yeah. what he's done in the game. And I think it's it's well worth us visiting soon on this podcast as well, particularly if Leicester's form continues. Right, let's get to the teaser answer then, guys, because at the start of the episode, I asked you after Mikel Antonio became the fourth player to score 40 Premier League goals for West Ham, who were the top three at the halfway stage? I told you that one of them is still at the club. A big clue there. And the three players are on 47, 46 and 41 goals, respectively. And to make it a little bit harder, I'd like them in the correct order, please, (laughs) from one to three. And we'll start with GB, I think. Okay. Number one, I'm going with Jermaine Defoe. Number two, I'm going to go with Mark Noble. And three, this is difficult. Uh, but just on maths, because I think he was there for uh, four years at least. I'm going to go with the Canio. Although that's right, I think I'm stretching with the Canio there. I think there's someone I've probably forgotten about there. Okay, Ben. Yeah, I've got the same three players. Um, I didn't have Noble at all until you said currently there. He's the only one given longevity that I can imagine, and the fact he took penalties. So. Defoe, formerly of Charlton, went to West Ham, always scored against Charlton. Then De Canio <laughs> went to, was at West Ham, came to Charlton, and then Mark Noble. That's what I'm going with. Well, I can tell you that you've both got two players, correct? Uh, GB, you take the win this week because you're the only one who's got a player in the correct position with Mark Noble in second place on 46 uh-huh. goals. Jermaine Defoe isn't in this. Oh, wow. Top of the pile with 47 goals, one ahead of Mark Noble, is Paolo Di Canio. Wow. And in third spot with 41 goals, 
It's Colton Cole. Oh, I was going to say Colton Cole. He's on my list. Oh, he's right next to Dean Ashton. Oh. <laughs> so there you go. Really? <laughs> the answer, Paolo Di Canio, Mark Noble and Colton Cole. So big congratulations if you got that at home because uh, it's very rare that I managed to stump both GB and yeah. our, our respective guests on this podcast. But I think I've managed to do it this week. Uh, good question there. Yeah, great and question. just a reminder as well for regular listeners of the show who usually find us via the Sky Sports Football Podcast umbrella that you'll be pleased to know you can now subscribe directly to the Pitch to Post podcast. That includes the preview, the review and all of the special episodes that we do. Just search Pitch to Post on your podcast provider and hit subscribe that is all from us though from the review show we'll be back with a review on monday after oh, manchester united and liverpool again this time in the fa cup so uh, fingers crossed for some goals as well as a look back at another busy midweek of premier league action but have a good week and we'll see you then This message comes from NPR sponsor Xfinity, protecting home devices from threats with Xfinity XFi. If it's connected, it's protected. Simple, easy, awesome. Go to Xfinity.com, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit an Xfinity store to switch today. Restrictions apply. This is Trey in Cleveland, Ohio, and I got an email over the holidays that I listened to 40,374 minutes of content on the NPR One app. This puts me in the top 2% of the NPR Politics Podcast listeners. This specific podcast was recorded at 2.12 p.m. on January 5th, 2021. Things may have changed by the time you hear it, but I will probably still be listening to NPR. Enjoy the show! I swear we did not pay him to say that, everyone. (laughs) Amazing winner! Gold medal! I know! All right. Hey there. It is the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben. I cover politics. I'm Claudia Grisales. I cover Congress. It is the last day of voting in Georgia with two runoff elections for Senate seats. One between Democrat John Ossoff and Republican David Perdue. The other between Democrat Raphael Warnock and Republican Kelly Loeffler. These, as we've been saying on this podcast, are enormously important races. They will determine the balance of power in the Senate chamber, which means huge implications for how much of his agenda President-elect Joe Biden might be able to enact. And so joining us, we have NPR Sarah McCammon. She is a Georgia expert. She used to work for our member station in Georgia. Hello, Sarah. That's right. I did. And hello. Happy New Year. Yes, you too. It's great to talk to you again. Uh, So let's get right down to business. Both the president and the president-elect have been campaigning in the state recently. What are the closing arguments here on both sides in both of these races? So the big theme is what you were just talking about, Danielle, just how high the stakes are here, how much significance these two runoffs have, not just for Georgia, but for the whole country. Uh, In Atlanta, Biden yesterday said the power is literally in your hands. One state can chart the court, not just for the next four years, but for a generation. President Trump has also stressed during his rally here in Dalton, where I'm recording from today, he was he was in Dalton last night. He stressed the importance of Republicans getting out the vote in huge numbers and reelecting those Republican senators. But he also spent a lot of time weaving in and out of talking about the Senate runoff, 
while also talking about his own grievances with Republican elections officials here and the Republican governor who have affirmed Biden's win in Georgia, something he still does not accept. And he continues to tout these conspiracy theories, debunk conspiracy theories about voter fraud. You know, it's interesting that we have seen Washington, D.C. very focused on this race. It's really impacted the the politics here. For example, some would argue that this recent wave of coronavirus relief aid was passed in part to boost these candidates, that they both want to argue on both sides of the aisle, that they help bring that through and is bringing it to voters in Georgia. Meanwhile, in terms of these national implications, we're also seeing potential 2024 candidates down there in the field trying to reach out to voters, perhaps at the beginnings of their own aspirations of trying to run for president in 2024. Well, and one measure that kind of blew my mind, although maybe it's not that shocking when you think about it, is that these two races are now the number one and number two most expensive Senate races ever according to the Center for Responsive Politics. And on top of that, it just seems like everything about these races is huge. Uh, Turnout has already broken Georgia's record for Senate runoff turnouts. I mean, Sarah, what does that look like on the ground? Is it just being bombarded with ads, phone calls, that sort of thing constantly? Yeah, that's my sense. I mean, just driving down the highway, you see billboards everywhere. You see signs all over the place. And of course, as we've mentioned, uh, lots of outside money, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in ads have been spent on these races uh, from Georgia and across the country. Lots of outside people, so to speak, um, both grassroots organizers and volunteers and paid staffers. Um, You know, the Democrats have a huge ground game here. Republicans also have a, a lot of people canvassing, at least in the past few days since I've been here. Both sides do realize just how significant these runoffs are and they're making their last big push. Mm -hmm. What issues seem to be at the center of the race here? What issues are the parties bringing up? Or maybe more pointedly, to what degree is this a race about the issues or is it just about nationalized politics? Is it all about Trump, Biden, Senate control, that sort of thing? I'd say it's much more the latter. Just a little side note, there is a third runoff election in Georgia today Mm -hmm. for public service commissioner. (laughs) And in that race, people are talking about things like utility costs in Georgia. But in general, in the two big races, everyone's paying the most attention to the Senate runoffs. It really is primarily about national politics and not just Senate control, but um, big issues facing the country like the coronavirus pandemic. I've heard a couple of voters, Democratic voters, mention that as a big concern. Over the weekend in Warner Robins, Georgia, I met Danielle Goins. Uh, she works in healthcare. She's 55. She was at a rally for Warnock, and she said she is really motivated to elect these two Democrats. Because we got to stop Mitch. We had to stop Mitch because Mitch McConnell has already showed his hand on what he would do. He doesn't care about Americans, and if you are not in um, a high rich. He doesn't care about you. And she was referring, of course, to the coronavirus relief package that Claudia was just mentioning. And, 
you know, expressing the feeling that it really fell short of what Americans really need, especially those who've lost jobs, to get through this crisis. Mm -hmm. And Sarah, what are you hearing from Republicans? We've been hearing so much come out of the state, including President Trump, who called into the state recently, raising these claims that the elections in Georgia have been rigged. What have you been hearing from other Republicans in the state? You know, Claudia, the people that come to these events to rallies and, you know, get out the vote events and canvassing are motivated, engaged Republicans. So I want to caveat this with that. Um, But the people I'm meeting are, at minimum, they don't trust the system. And uh, many of them are very, very angry. I talked to Bruce Carter. He's 66, lives outside Atlanta, and he'd come to Dalton last night uh, to this Trump rally. He said it's his seventh Trump rally, and he's still refuses to accept the election results. I asked him why he won't believe Republican elections officials in Georgia who affirm Biden's victory, and he raised some baseless conspiracy theories. I think our wallets got fat. Yep, time will tell, but it ain't right. Do you have any anything to back that up? <laughs> why else would they do it? Possibly because it's true? Nah. Trump's been the best president in my lifetime. Now, he's been the best president in my lifetime and probably the best president the United States has ever had. So, um, assuming that Joe Biden is inaugurated in a couple of weeks, what do you think that means for the country? I think we'll be in civil war. Lock and load, baby. We've fought for this country many times. It ain't going to stop now. Would you actually commit violence against fellow citizens yourself? Damn right I would. Really? And at that point, he just walked off. And, you know, if one person had said this, I might dismiss it as a fringe idea. But in just a few days of reporting here in Georgia, three different people, two Republicans and one Democrat, have independently expressed to me that they either are concerned about violence or even willing to engage in it. And I think this is also reflective of the broader skepticism I mentioned among Republicans Uh, the lack of faith in the election system that's been seeded and promoted by President Trump. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there for now. Sarah, thank you so much for your reporting. It's always a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you all, too. All right. We're going to take a break now. And when we come back, we are going to talk about the process of certifying the Electoral College results. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Hint, fruit-infused water with no calories or sweeteners. Hint water comes in over 25 flavors. The watermelon water actually tastes like watermelon. The blackberry water tastes like blackberries. Hint is water with a touch of true fruit flavor. You can get Hint water at stores, or you can have it delivered directly to your door. When you buy two cases, you'll get a third case free and free shipping. Visit drinkhint.com and use promo code NPR at checkout. LifeKit is rethinking New Year's resolutions. All this January, we're thinking about both really big and really small changes. If you're wanting to change up your life and start fresh, we've got you covered. If you're looking to just make your home a little nicer, we got you there too. Listen now to the LifeKit podcast from NPR. And we're back not only with Claudia Grisales, but also with the one, the only Ron Mm. Elving. Ron, hello. Hey, good to be with you guys. Happy New Year. Guys, tomorrow Congress is set to certify the Electoral College results. I've got to say I've been in the news for years now. I don't recall this much attention ever being put on this before, but 
It's been a long time since standard affairs stopped being standard. Norms are out the window. So let's talk about the process tomorrow. First things first, Claudia, what is the schedule of events? How does this go down? This all kicks off at 1 p.m. Wednesday in the House chamber, so we'll see Senate members head over to that chamber to commence. Vice President Mike Pence will take over as presiding officer, and alphabetically they'll go state by state over their certificate of electoral results. And Trump and his Republican allies have targeted several states where members say they'll object. So a House member will need a partner in a Senate member for an objection to be heard. And they're focused on six states. That's Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And so once an objection has a House and Senate member objecting jointly on that state, The members will depart to their respective chambers. They'll hear those objections. They'll debate for up to two hours. It could be less, but all in all, it's a very long day that will stretch perhaps late into Wednesday and into Thursday. And it's really hard to say how long this could go on, but we're all going to wait and see. Absolutely. It has been as little as 23 minutes, but uh, we did have a hiccup in 2005. There was an objection from a House member and one senator. They did go to their chambers and have a debate, come back, very lopsided votes to disallow those objections and allow the electors from Ohio to vote. So that didn't amount to much, uh, but that was a little bit of a hiccup. They tried in 2000 around the state of Florida. You may remember all of that uh, incredible dispute over Florida back in 2000. And when that got to this point and they were approving the electors, uh, there was some talk about uh, objecting to Florida, but there was no senator who was willing to join the House members. So it didn't come to anything at that point. And really, all of this stuff is pretty much 19th century. It, it All of it comes from a, a law back in 1887, and we don't have to go into where that came from, but it was trying to solve a big mess that basically came out of the end of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And a note that, as Claudia said, this could be a very long process. So we will be putting our podcast out later than usual tomorrow because the process could go on for a while. Uh, but getting back to you, Claudia, tell us more about these senators, House members, these people who might object. Who are they and what does it tell us about what's going on? These are very close allies to President Trump. We expect more than 100 House Republicans to sign off on these objections. And now more than a dozen Senate Republicans have said they're planning to object as well, meaning they're planning to join these House members in their objections of these various states' results. We are noting that some of these folks are candidates or or hoping to be candidates for the 2024 elections. This could be a moment for them to make their mark on this stage. Now, this is going to be a much bigger stage than usual. And they're kind of fighting it out on who is going to be the biggest Trump ally. And we see members such as Josh Hawley of Missouri. Uh, This was the first Senate Republican who said he would sign on to this. And then we saw the dominoes fall after that, and that includes Ted Cruz of Texas. This is another 2024 hopeful. And so we may see a lot of that come Wednesday in terms of these folks who have these presidential aspirations. This is not going to change the results of the election. But on the other hand, this is a group of lawmakers attempting to subvert the results of a fair election. I mean, give us some perspective here. How big of a deal is this? How worrisome is this to you? 
This is dangerous territory. It's a dangerous idea, but it's not going to go anywhere, and we can't emphasize this too strongly. The president has been urging Mike Pence to exercise some power the president imagines that he has to cast out the reports from some of the states. Uh, There are no competing slates of electors. There are only Hmm. the agreed-upon electors. All of it's been certified by the governors of all 50 states in both parties. It's been up to courts all over the country, and Trump judges as well as other judges have basically kicked it away. So this is just an attempt, really, to endear a number of Republican senators to the strongest supporters of President Trump and show their loyalty to the president in the final days of his time in office. All right, well, let's leave it there for now. A reminder that we will be back late tomorrow after watching all of this closely to wrap up the biggest moments from the certification process. Until then, I'm Danielle Kurtzleben. I cover politics. I'm Claudia Grisales. I cover Congress. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. So as you know, I've been in the podcasting space for a very long time now. Somebody came up to me the other day and they're like, Pat, dude, you're one of the old guys in the space. I love it. You've been doing this for so long. And I'm like, thank you. (laughs) Anyway, I've been really lucky to produce some really successful podcasts, multiple podcasts and also courses. And part of my success is due to how particular I've been with some of the tools that I use. And in the podcasting space, My favorite tool is Buzzsprout. It is hands down the best tool for starting a podcast in 2021. It's amazingly easy to use as a podcast host. It's backed by a team that really cares about your success. They've been on the show before as guests, in fact. And like all podcasting hosting services, they get your show listed in all the major directories with I think like one click, you can make it happen, almost one click. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, et cetera. But what makes Buzzsprout different is they actually provide some really cool advanced tools that take the time to ensure everything is super easy to use. They have this thing called the magic mastering feature, which is so cool, which means literally you just flip a switch and every episode you upload is gonna be mastered properly, which matches all the levels in your show. So if you have somebody who's really soft, it's gonna bring it up. And that way, if a person's listening to your show in the car, they don't have to like turn it up when somebody's soft and then their ears blow out when you come back. It's just so, so good. All of this and so many features I didn't mention are available in Buzzsprout with plans starting at just $12 a month. They're an absolute wonderful partner and I've worked with them to offer my listeners an additional 33% more time on whichever plan you choose. Yes, if you go through our link, you get 33% more time added to your account. So let's make 2021 the year you start a podcast. Just head over to smartpassiveincome.com slash buzzsprout. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash buzzsprout. And I'll see you on all the directories. Let's do this. So back in 2014, I was super frustrated with podcast players. Just, you know, anything that you could put on your website to play a podcast, nothing was great. They were ugly, super frustrating to use, and there was just like bare minimum features, right? So guess what I did? I decided to create my own. It used to be called the Smart Podcast Player, and now it's called Fusebox because there's even more cool things in it. And now thousands of podcasters use and love using Fusebox for their shows. In case you're not familiar with it, Fusebox.fm, it's a premium podcast player designed to help you engage your website visitors and grow your podcast online. A lot of people think, yes, you need to get people to subscribe to your favorite directories, Apple, Spotify, et cetera. That's still important. But where are most of your first-time listeners, or many of them at least, finding you for the first time? 
on your website. If that impression is not good, then you're failing, and that's where Fusebox comes into play. You can transform your website into a podcast listening experience that your listeners will enjoy and come back to over and over again. It can help you increase the number of times you get played. It helps people go deeper into your archive. People can even subscribe through your player. Yes, we added that feature too. And this month, I'm excited to introduce to you Fusebox 2.0. It's a brand new version of Fusebox with some major upgrades that I can't wait to share for you. So let me tell you, now it supports the most popular website, builder platforms, not just WordPress anymore, but Squarespace, Wix, Webflow, and many more. That is huge. Brand new and fully redesigned players to account for the features podcasters and listeners want and they've been asking us for. We put them in there. Design and customize a player however you want in the Fusebox dashboard. Super flexible pricing, all that great stuff. Customizable for all stages of podcasters and it's helping people grow their show, which is my main goal. So here we go. I know that there are many other podcast players out there. Some just get put into free for the hosts that you use. And many of them, you know, they're okay, but you want the best experience, right? And speaking from experience, free isn't always great. And as the needs of podcasters expand, you need to use the tools that will not only meet your needs, but innovate and stay ahead of the curve. And with Fusebox, you can grow your show without feeling limited, knowing you are backed by a team that understands podcasting because guess what? They're podcasters too. So Fusebox 2.0 is available for new and existing subscribers. Sign up today at Fusebox.fm to start engaging your website visitors and growing your podcast online, Fusebox.fm. Thank you so much. All right, you've all heard those stories of people who say they were in a band back in the day and then they made it. Well, that's exactly what we're talking about today, but not in the way that you think. Josh Hall was actually in a band, and as a result of being in the band, he made the right connections and was actually able to design something that changed the course of his life and the lives of several others too. Josh Hall today is a top website designer, somebody who now also teaches other people how to create their own website design business. And today he's gonna talk about this journey from rock band to rockin' websites and helping other people too and how he's balancing all this with family and using online courses and now even a membership to do such things. So make sure you stick around. This is a great one. I love that we're starting off the year with a success story from one of our own. Yes, a member of Team Flynn, a member of SPI Pro, in fact. I cannot wait for you to hear this story. Here we go. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host. He secretly wishes he was sponsored by 3M's Post-it Notes, Pat Flynn. What is up, everybody? Paplin here, and welcome to session 456 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Really, really thankful you are joining me here today, and this is the second episode of 2021, and if you haven't heard last week's episode, I highly recommend after this episode going back and listening to that one with Rob Maurer from the Tesla Daily Podcast. Incredible growth from what he's doing with YouTube and a podcast in combination with each other, and today we have a special guest, Josh Hall, one of our very own, who's here to share his story. But not only that, some really amazing advice to help us here at the start of the year, especially if you have goals to grow your business and even monetize your business this year too. So let's not wait any further. Here is Josh Hall from joshhall.co. Josh, welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pat, it's great to be here, man. Thanks for having me on. I'm really stoked. You were actually featured on a blog post success story 
with Karen and, and you working together to create that post, super inspirational. And I was like, you know what? I need to bring Josh on the podcast. You are a listener, you're a fan, you are in SPI Pro, and you yourself have an amazing audience who follows you for a lot of website design related stuff. And you have a, an amazing story. I want to go back to how this all started. In fact, before we kick off with a lot of the amazing strategies that you have, I know podcasting has been important to you. Online courses have been big for your world too. But let's go back to like your band days. You were in a band, you're a musician like me, but you didn't play in the marching band. You were in a different kind of band. Tell us a little bit about that and kind of how that started this whole process for you. Yeah, I was a drummer in a rock band and we were kind of weekend warriors for a while and we did some national traveling. At that time, I was also working as a cabinet maker for a tour bus customizing shop. So I did some cool stuff in that business, got to work on Metallica's bus, Johnny Cash's bus. So I was a cabinet maker by day, you know, doing the band stuff by night and then we were traveling around and in 2009, I got laid off. So very similar to you, Pat. I got laid off from my cabinet making yeah. job. And I got into Photoshop the day after. I always liked design. I liked doing art and stuff. So I started doing, dabbling into Photoshop and graphic design. And since I was doing the band thing, I was like, you know what? I'm going to take a crack at designing our t-shirts and some of our merchandise and CD artwork and stuff. So I started doing that. And I'll never forget it. We were playing a festival and I had done all of our t-shirts and CD artwork. And somebody asked me, hey, who does your artwork? And I said, well, I do. And they were like, how much would you charge to do our artwork? And I was like, it was like the light bulb went off in my mind. I was like, (laughs) what? I can actually get paid and do something that I really enjoy. So that's kind of the jettison of how this all started. And then to summarize the story, once the band time kind of wore down, I was helping out with a local church and they found out I did design and they were like, would you like to take our website over? And I was like, sure, I don't know anything about websites, but started dabbling into web design along with doing graphic design. And that's really how it it all kind of started for me. That's really cool. When did it switch from just like dabbling to actually getting serious about it, turning it into a business? What kicked out? It was, yeah, it was a couple years in. So I, the church actually offered to send me to our community college so I could take some classes on web design. This was right before WordPress was getting really excited. So I was doing like custom code. I'm not going to bore your audience with the custom code language, but it was that kind of stuff. So I was dabbling my feet in there. And then my whole goal was to do it on the side and just do some side graphic design and web design work and then get a full-time job as like an agency designer. That was my goal. Mm-hmm. But I was working some side jobs. The band kind of you know, got to an end. And then I realized I was making enough money on the side that I was like, I think I could potentially do this full-time. So I was doing like night school. And I think, it, I think one year I made like 30 grand or something on the side. So I was like, you know what? If I could make that on the side, I think I could double that at least if I went full-time. So it was about two years of dabbling, doing kind of freelance on the side. And that's when I just, I went for it. So I, I really went for it in about 2012. How much of a conversation did you have with yourself about that decision to kind of go full-time? Because I know a lot of people have a little bit of success and it's like still grinding at them. I don't know if this is the right thing to do. This is not what I really thought I was going to do and it's risky. And how much of that conversation did you have or was it just, you know what, all in from the start? Yeah, that's a great question, Pat. I think for me, I'm, I'm fairly fine with risk. 
I've always been entrepreneurial. I've never been the typical nine to five academic kind of guy. That's not my style. I would lose my mind working in a cubicle. So the, the entrepreneurial lifestyle just suits me. But for me also at that period, I think I was 22, 23. I didn't have a relationship. I didn't have a wife or anything. Didn't have a family. I was living with my dad, you know, being that I was just getting out of the band stuff. So there really wasn't that much risk. I figured I'm going to kick myself if I don't go for it. So I went for it. And it's, uh, it's been amazing since then. That was the start of the entrepreneurial journey for me. That's really cool. Let's fast forward a little bit. I know that you help other web designers and, and people in the design space now with their career. For those who aren't 20, who are living at their parents' house, who don't have the ability to take on a ton of risk, like if you were starting now, I know you have a family now and you have these, this, these beautiful children and an amazing wife. If you were to do what you were doing back then now, how would it differ, do you think? What, what do you recommend to your clients typically when they're starting in a later part of their life? So I always recommend look at the worst possible scenario because usually it's not as bad as people think. Like, so I'm in Columbus, Ohio. We have a good family base. Worst case scenario, if both my businesses just didn't work out for whatever reason, I'm never going to end up on the streets. You know, we'd be taken care of. That is the absolute worst thing that could happen for us as an entrepreneur. Most people, that's the case. Very rarely are you going to lose everything. So I always say, like, what would be like the worst possible scenario or case? And then never think about that again. Put that in the back drawer and just move forward. Be optimistic. Think about what you can do. Think about your value. And be really smart and strategic about your goals. And really, I think a lot of it... And one reason I'm so passionate about being a web design coach now is to get somebody to mentor you and to help fast track your journey. And that's one reason I love what you're doing, Pat. It's one reason I love what a lot of people are doing now where we've taken our experience and we're sharing it with others so they can fast track their journey. Because when I got started, you just asked, you know, what, what would I do differently? Back then, I didn't seek out any mentors. I just kind of went for it. I just made every possible mistake you could make. And it took a long time to get, you know, pretty successful into the six-figure range as a web designer, whereas some of my web design students are hitting six figures in less than a year now. So it really is surrounding yourself with an amazing community, getting in with a good guide, a good mentor, whether it's me or anyone else who you feel a kinship with, and just helping get some some help to fast-track that journey. I love that. I love that. It's very sound advice. You had mentioned that one thing you would do differently would be to find somebody who could help you. What what were some of the other mistakes that you had made when you first finally decided to go all in with business? As we all know, it's often a rocky start. What was your rocky start like? Well, I'll start with my business card and I'll show you how far I've come from a business mindset. I decided that since I was doing drum lessons on the side as well, that I would put drum lessons on my business card with website design and graphic design. So I was seeking out clients and giving them this this business card that had websites, graphic design, flyers, t-shirts, and drum lessons. And that was okay for some of the band people I was working for. But once I started talking with like construction companies and legitimate, you know, clients with budgets, they were like, uh, drum lessons. So I, uh, I did mm. not represent myself that well in the early days. So that was something, but it really was just a matter of all the the basic type of business principles that we all struggle with when starting out. Pricing is a big one. I was very, very low. I also did an advertisement where I put cheap web design 
here's a little word word of advice. Never put cheap in your marketing. Just that's not a good way to go because you're going to attract the cheap clients. So I was attracting for the most part not great, you know, leads, but I did land a few good leads and I had a good personal and semi-professional network that I just utilized. I started with my family and my friends, which I always tell my students, it's the best place to start. And sometimes it's not them that are going to be your clients, but it's who they know. So, you know, some of those things were were kind of the tough tough things that I went through early on because I really didn't have somebody like myself saying, hey, here's where I would start, you know, go through a course, feel good about your services and go from there. What was it like to work with clients for the first time? It's one thing to kind of do things as a hobby and with people that you kind of already know and whether it's family or not, when there's money involved, when there's a business transaction, it feels a little different. What was it like working with actual clients who had expectations from the work that you were doing? Tell me kind of what was going through your head and the pros, cons, great, not so great. So I actually enjoyed it from a standpoint of they had money to spend. Because I came from the band world, if I was doing a t-shirt design, 50 bucks for a band was a lot of money. And then once I started working with like a construction company or real businesses, I remember I did a suite of brochures for this construction company. And I had no idea how to bid it. And I bid 150 bucks, I think, for like this suite of brochures that I would normally want to charge at least a grand to two grand to do. And they were like, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's not what we were expecting. But they went for it. And it made me realize businesses have a much bigger budget. So I actually enjoyed working with them and they were better at getting content to me. They're more professional. So yes, it's a little nerve wracking when you're talking with a business, but it beats talking with somebody who has zero budget and is going to be super cheap and is going to try to nickel and dime you. So yeah, there's the nerve wracking part, but I actually really enjoyed it because they uh, they actually paid me. That's great. Now, speaking of pricing, I want to unpack that a little bit. You had mentioned you lowered your price without, I mean, because, and same thing with me when I first came out with ads on my website that I was selling or even selling my own product, I was completely undercutting. What's your recommendation for how to know what to price something? It is tricky, particularly, I'm speaking to mostly web designers here because that's who I teach, but web design is all over the place with pricing. Mm -hmm. There's no right or wrong price. Some people charge a few hundred, some charge a few thousand. There are websites that go for tens of thousands. So it really is all over. The biggest thing is you need to feel confident and comfortable with your services first off, which is why I do courses now, why there's a ton of YouTube channels where you can learn web design. You really have to feel somewhat confident in your services. And that's going to help build confidence for working with clients. So one reason I didn't know what to charge was because I just my my process was sloppy and messy at first because I didn't go through any formal training, just kind of went for it. So it was very hard to price. Whereas if you go through some training, and even if you're outside of web design, if you're in a different industry, if you at least know how to do something from start to finish, you get an idea of how many hours are going to be evolved. You know the value. You can also do some research. You could do some you could do some research on what websites are being, you know, bid out for or you know what type of price ranges are out there. You can do that and that'll give you an idea of where to start. And you'll start on the low end when you start out and that's totally fine, but you can gravitate and work towards the higher end as you get more valuable and as you gain a little more confidence with each client. So yeah, I was I was doing stuff for like 150 bucks in the beginning. I remember my first <laughs> website I sold for $300 and my client I think felt bad that I I charged so little that he offered to do 350. And uh, <laughs> yes, uh, I did throw a logo in there for him. So I think that's where the 50 bucks came from. But now, you know, I wouldn't touch something like that for under three grand. So it's, although yeah. the value is different now, I know the industry, but yeah, hopefully some of those tips 
can translate to all industries, whether it's web design or photography or anything else. Yeah. Thank you for that. So you are a business owner now during this timeline and you have clients coming in. And did it ever get to the point where you're just like, I can't take any more clients or, you know, I'm just so busy now or how do I scale this thing? When was the first sort of like pivot point for you after kind of going down that route? Yeah, so I was a solopreneur, web design freelancer for about six years. And I I started kind of dabbling out to some contractors and some friends who could help out with different areas. It was a good taste of being kind of a business owner. It helped shift my mindset. And then I think I was about seven years in I was already married at that time. So we were already into the six figures range. And I knew that I was taking on a lot and I had to start getting some help. The thing is, though, I, I'm a big proponent of if you want to stay a solopreneur, you can, especially in web design. You can do that for as long as you want to, but you are going to get to a place where at some point you can't do everything on your own. Some people want to scale faster. I was very content. I had a really good work-life balance. I, I controlled my day. I controlled my schedule. So I felt good as a solopreneur until... I'll never forget it. I had, I think, 23 projects all by myself. And I was like, I don't... It was just like a wave. It was like a wave of... Because my business was almost 100% referral-based at that point. And it was just one of those where they all came in at the same time. Now, these weren't all big website jobs, but some of them were. And a lot of them were still jobs that were going to take five, six hours, something I would consider a project. And I was like, oh boy, I've... I can't do it. I have to get some help. And we were also expecting our first daughter who was going to be coming just a few months later. So I was like, I got to get some help immediately. Luckily, I was involved in a web design community. That's amazing. I use just for the techie people out there, I use the Divi theme for WordPress. They have an amazing online community. So I did some stuff in that community. And that kind of attracted some people who were interested in what I was doing. And that's how I ended up finding some really good subcontractors. And then I hired my first guy shortly before my daughter was born. And he was able to take a lot of the workload off for me. Nice, nice. So hiring out some help, cloning yourself a little bit. That's that's amazing. And then now I know you're at a point where you have even more scalability through things like your courses. When, when did your courses come into play? How has that impacted your business? Yeah, so that really was the game changer for me. So at this time... So I just I started scaling my business in the beginning of 2018. So not that long ago, just just a couple of years ago I really started scaling. And then what had happened was my first daughter was born and this will transition to your question Pat with how courses came about. My first daughter was born and we spent 56 days in the NICU, the newborn intensive oh care when gosh. she was born. So it was a really trying time and thank goodness I just hired Jonathan my my lead designer to help with some of those projects cuz imagine if I didn't scale and had all those projects and go through this time so we were essentially at the hospital and I was working from a Panera right across the street the cool thing that really helped us in that time was I had built a website maintenance plan which was my only source of recurring income so while it was really hard to work, my creativity was zapped because we were in the hospital all day. I still had some recurring income with our website maintenance plan, which is where we take care of our clients' website updates, backups, reporting, and all that stuff. And once we got out of the hospital and we got settled in, I thought, you know what? If I were to do a course, because I had already started training some people at this point, I had started joshhall.co, I had started doing tutorials. I was originally going to do like plugins and themes and a whole different career path. But I've always liked teaching and somebody was asking me about training, like some courses. And I thought, you know what, maybe I will do a course, maybe I'll just give it a go. I'll try it out. 
And the question was, what type of course do I want to do first? Do I want to do a how to build a website? Normally, I would start there. But because I was so passionate about how our website maintenance plan helped my family through that time, and it covered our expenses, it covered our living expenses through the hospital time, I decided, you know what, I'm going to do a course on that because I've got it working. It was so personal to me with how it helped our business. I was like, I want to help other web designers learn how to build this not only for situations like that, but just for recurring income. Web design, yeah. and just like a lot of industries, are very feast and famine. So mm-hmm. wanted to do that. Launched my first course in the fall of 2018. And man, that's, that's when it all changed for me, Pat, right there. Tell me about the course launch. How did you get the word out there? What happened when you pressed go on that sales process? Yeah. So like I mentioned, I, I had already started building as an authority in this realm of, of the Divi theme and WordPress. And I had become a blog author for a couple of prominent sites. And so I already started building some authority. So there was some awareness about me and what I was doing. So when I launched my course, I already had a good start of an audience. So it wasn't like I launched a course and had to build an audience. I already had a, an audience built and I was producing free tutorials and like all my stuff was free. It was actually a very costly venture for about the first year, this brand of joshhall.co because I didn't have anything to sell when I was just pumping out free stuff. But it did build my audience. So when I launched my first course, they knew about it. And I think I had 82 or 83 people enroll at first. And it just blew my mind because the course was 297. I think I did the pre-order for 197. And that income, you know, 197 times 83 kind of shocked me and blew my mind about... I mean, I worked my butt off. Don't get me wrong. Courses, as you know, Pat, are a lot of work. But for sure. It just, I mean, it beat the service work. I, I love my clients, but <laughs> I it planted the seed and, and gave me an itch to be like, you know what? I want to do more of these because this was freaking awesome. So I did That's the first cool. course and then I dove right into doing more courses. That's where it all started here. That's awesome. Congratulations on that. And I think that the question then becomes, well, how do you then balance the online course stuff, which kind of removes yourself from the process of teaching. I mean, you've taught, obviously, and people can get access to the course. But then are you, were you still doing client work on the side or did that yes. eventually sort of like go away? Or do you still do it? So yeah, long story short, when I started doing courses, I was still running my web design business. Luckily, I had a full-time freelancer doing design and I had some other subcontractors. So they were doing the bulk of the kind of in the business work, like working with clients and doing the design. Although I was still doing all of the proposals, invoicing and, and some of that kind of stuff. So I was still kind of the project manager running the show. And I was doing courses basically part time. So after that first course launched with a big success, I started getting life-changing testimonials coming in. I decided to to launch a second course. So I built my second course out. And then once I had that second course out, I was spending probably like probably about half and half, like half time on the web design agency, half my time in the courses. The cool thing about that that resonated with students is that they were learning from somebody who was actively in the business. So like I was literally working with clients and then turning right around and making it course content. So I did a couple courses. It really it, it made up like half my income for the year, just a couple courses. So I was like, all right, I'm I'm going ham on this thing. And then we kicked off 2019 and I went like on a tear with courses. I built courses every couple of weeks and started building out kind of a suite of web design courses. Some topics were evergreen that were like just general business kind of stuff. Some stuff was more topical. And that's really what what kicked it off. And then as I built more and more courses and ran my business, fast forward to... I'm not sure when this is going to come out, but we're recording this at the end of 2020. Earlier this year, I'll never forget it, I was putting a proposal together and there was like this light bulb moment again that was like a big red flag 
because I just didn't want to do that proposal anymore. I remember just going through it. I'm like, I just don't feel like working with like the client stuff anymore. And it wasn't mm-hmm. something where I just want, I could have hired that out. I could have had somebody step in, but I realized not only did I not want to do the proposal, I didn't really feel like doing the onboarding anymore. I didn't feel like doing the project management and the fulfillment with the client. And it wasn't because I was burned out with web design, but it was because I was so passionate about the courses. I was getting these life-changing testimonials coming in from my students. And I was like, I want to go for this. I, I really want to go for this. So that was springtime 2020. And that's what planted the seed for me to get ready to sell my agency. So also, I should mention too, obviously, we know what happened in the spring of 2020, COVID hit. And I saw a huge, huge influx of people asking about my courses because there were people getting laid off left and right and they couldn't work. A lot of people were doing web design on the side and then they wanted to take their web design stuff full-time because they couldn't work. I've had teachers come in learning web design with me, Uber drivers, just had an airline pilot come into my courses. Like All these different industries were segmenting and going into web design. So it was like... And I just finished my suite of courses, man. It was like amazing timing. So that really... All that combined really led me to go, you know what? I'm I'm going full-time course. I'm doing this. So oddly enough, I checked with one of my kind of prized students who had already taken his web design business to six figures in one year. And I felt like he would be a good fit to take over my clients. So we worked out a deal for him to take over my web design agency. I still do retain some ownership in it and I oversee him and our team. But he take he took all the clients and I essentially sold my web design agency to go full time with courses. Wow. Nice, dude. I love it. I love it. And now you get a little bit more time back. You can put some some of that time into more courses and being there with your students. You built this amazing thing. You're handing it off to somebody else. You didn't just like sell it to some random person. You sold it to somebody who you knew could take care of your clients still. And you're still involved a little bit. That is amazing. Any regrets selling it? Any thoughts? No. We've interviewed people here. No. <laughs> Just legit. No, no, like that was my baby. I started it, but (laughs) no regrets whatsoever. Now, I will say, I was again, I wasn't burned out from web design. It wasn't an easy decision because I really, really liked my, I loved my clients. My clients were near and dear to me. A lot of them I had been working Mm -hmm. on their sites for years. I mean, some of my clients date back to like 2011. So I was like their guy. So, I'm condensing a very, very in-depth story with selling my agency because there was a whole process to that. I did a podcast episode on my podcast about how I sold it. And I actually brought my CEO, Eric, in to get his perspective on it. And it was. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of work. It was big. And it was not easy. I'll never forget the day I was. we made the deal and I was getting ready to, to send out emails to clients personally, like all of our top A and B clients. My fingers were shaking because I was like, this is like, this is huge. This is a huge moment. And when we made the decision, I think there just so happened to be some dust that came into my eye and made it watery. You know, it was like, (laughs) it was not an easy, it was not an easy decision. But what I was doing with courses and what I was doing with my students just trumped all of that. And I just, I love teaching. I don't feel like I'm working when I'm teaching. I love podcasting now, which I'm happy to talk about what I've learned with podcasting. So it was just huge. It was, it was a huge game-changing time for me. And a really cool thing was I was very careful, like you said, about who was going to take over my clients. I wanted somebody who not only had the like mindset that I did, but I wanted somebody who was really good at communication and somebody who I felt really comfortable to take care. Because they, they, were, they were my clients. It is my baby. That business was my baby, uh, like mm-hmm. you said. So uh, I felt like he was going to be a really good fit. And the extra cool thing about that was because he was a student... He designed like me. 
He went through all of my courses, knew my processes. We were we used all the same tools. So he kind of, he was kind of like a, a mini me. And I, yeah, I was yeah. able to, to transfer the clients. And it wasn't like they were getting all new tools and everything. It was, it was so in a weird way, doing courses really was like a standard operating procedure for, for me in a, in a lot of ways. Dude, that's so cool. Speaking of your courses, how many courses do you have now? What's your launch cycle like? Are they always open or do you launch during the year? Give us a little insight on that. Yeah, so I have nine courses right now. So I did a course on average about every two months there for a little while, two to three months. Like I said, I went on kind of a tear where I did some of my smaller courses. And then last year, I launched a big business course, which took a lot of time to build. And then earlier 2020, I wrapped up my final couple courses, which kind of completes like a suite of courses for web designers. So there's one on like design, SEO, the maintenance plan, the business, some coding. So it really kind of, it's, it's kind of like a mini university. And then once I launched that final course, that, that ninth one in the suite, that's when I got ready to sell my business. So I, I haven't launched a new one since then, but I'm happy to talk about as well what I've learned uh, here with my membership stuff. But I just recently launched my membership because I knew that's where I wanted to take things to, to the next level. I do plan to do more courses, but right now I'm actually, and I think you've probably experienced this, Pat, with some of the topical kind of courses, meaning the stuff where technology changes pretty frequently, you have to keep that up to date. So I'm actually getting ready to like revamp and do new lessons for a lot of those topical courses. Everything's still relevant, but it needs to be updated. The cool thing about that, though, what I'm finding is like a couple of my courses now are two years old. Well, I can update them, revamp some of the stuff and do a whole fresh marketing launch cycle with proven testimonials, proven case studies and results. And I can condense some of the videos. I know I joined your Power Up Podcasting course, I think right after you did the 2.0 version. So I didn't really get to see what it looked like previously. But uh, right, right. when I heard you did that, I was pumped up because I was like, ooh, I could do that. And I could do like a 2.0. And then people who already have the course, lifetime access, so they don't pay another dime. They just get to go through it again. And it'll be a really good fresh cycle for the new one. So that that's kind of the game plan. Yeah. That's really cool. I love it. Are your courses open all the time? Like I could just get any one of them. Do you have the ability to, I would imagine with a suite of nine courses, like can I get the whole shebang, like all of them for one price? Like to, how do you market them? Yeah, so they are all open. Marketing is an area that I, I'm really gonna take more seriously here in 2021 with how I market them. Currently, I do it very organically and a lot like I ran my business as a web designer. Basically, all of my podcast episodes, instead of taking sponsors, they are essentially presented by and sponsored by a course. So I'll do a podcast episode and I'll say, you know, before we dive into this talk, this episode is presented by my website beginners course. So that's kind of how I promote them. And then to answer your question, yes. Once I got my ninth course out there, I created a bundle. And for any course creators out there, I highly, highly recommend doing a bundle because it's been amazing how many people either purchase the bundle and it's a big discount off of what they would normally spend. And then what I do is if somebody goes through a course or two and they want to upgrade to the bundle, I always honor uh, a big discount for them to, to get the bundle with, you know, since they already paid a few hundred bucks or whatever, they'll get a certain discount off the bundle. That's been a game changer. The bundle has been one of the best things I ever did. Very nice. That's so cool. Let's talk about your podcast. It seems to be a very important component of how you bring awareness, obviously sales and starting that process. When did the podcast start? What is the podcast about? What do you love about it? All right. So I'm, I, I don't think we're doing this on video, but uh, I'm smiling right now because I think podcasting is potentially my favorite thing to talk about right now because it has been an absolute 
game changer. And I'm not just saying this to blow smoke up for Pat Flynn. Like it really has (laughs) been, it's been the biggest converter for me, Pat. Like it is insane. I'll I'll talk about how I got started and everything, but so I'm not on Instagram too much, but I do follow you. And one of your little, I don't know if it was like a TikTok animation thing or whatever it was, but you talked, you had like an animated thing about how many people or how much time people spend on your site with a blog post versus how much time they spend on a YouTube video might be 10, 15 minutes. How much time they spend on you know, a blog post might be seven minutes. And with podcasting, how much time do they spend with you on that? And it's like, voo, 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 it's just going over the clock. It's just nonstop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and it suits me because as everyone can probably tell right now, I am detailed. I am a little long-winded. Like I like to talk about stuff in detail. So I hate being rushed. I hate being surfacy. And I want to get into the weeds on topics. So podcasting suits me perfectly. I could do a half an hour, hour podcast episode. People love it. If I do a half hour video, people are like, oh, it's so long. So I just (laughs) love podcasting. So the way it started, though, I always knew I wanted to start a podcast. And actually, funny enough, I did almost like a trial run podcast when I just started scaling my business. One thing I learned going back to what I would have done differently is I learned instead of doing something yourself and making all the mistakes, just talk to people who have already been there and you will save yourself so much time. So when I started scaling my business, I inter- I did a little interview series on my website. It was almost like a mini podcast. I did an interview series with a bunch of web designers who had scaled their agencies. And I did a little nine interview series help boost my awareness as an authority. And I learned so much from all these people. And oddly enough, that interview series is actually how I found my first designer and a couple other subcontractors. So I did that interview series and I learned a lot about how to scale a business. More importantly, though, I realized I'm actually pretty good at interviewing and I really enjoyed doing these talks. It was like a little mini YouTube podcast type of thing. So that planted the seed for me to do a podcast. The problem was because I'm a web designer and I've been doing it for a while, I knew Doing a podcast is not as simple as it sounds if you're going to do it right. If there's going to be a lot of work, particularly at the start, I know how much time goes into editing and stuff like that. And at that time, I also knew going back to my mindset thing, I wanted to find somebody who I could almost learn from to help me fast track. And you and I share, I believe, a similar business coach in James Shramko. So I heard with Superfast Business, I heard you on his podcast. That was actually my first exposure to you. I had heard your name before. And then I heard you on that podcast. I loved the interview. I loved your style. I loved how you were really focused on the family balance. And one thing I'll never forget, I think you were talking about how like if you traveled for a podcasting seminar or something, you didn't tell your kids that you were just going to be away for work. You told them, you know, I'm going off to teach people about podcasting. And that idea really resonated with me because my I have two baby girls right now. They're two and almost one. So I don't talk like that to them, but I bring them in front of the camera all the time. With my membership now, they often make an appearance. So I'm integrating them too. But all that to say, I knew I wanted to start a podcast, but I knew it was going to be a ton of work. So I was not ready to commit to it until I was really, you know, I had the time to do it. So I was in the fall of 2019. I'll never forget. I So I heard your interview, really liked it. I went through your podcasting cheat sheet, gave me a really good framework to base it off of. And then that led me talk about a perfect funnel. It led me to your power of podcasting course. Dude, yes. Was, oh, man. Yeah. So, <laughs> that's the funnel, man. I'm like, I'm Pat, I'm literally taking your playbook and it's working like a dream. And we can talk about marketing the courses with funnels here because that's what I'm doing next. Yeah, but, yeah. But yeah, I went through your funnel and I felt really good about it. And I started the Power of Podcasting course on September 30th, 2019. I had three episodes launched, 
ready to go on all the platforms on October 24th. So Nine now months. I realize it's not even a month. Now I <laughs> bear in mind too, I'm a tech savvy dude. I was a web designer. I already had my website. I already had a mic because I was doing videos and stuff. So there was the tech aspect that I didn't need to, to worry about. And to be honest, I kind of, you know, the power podcasting course for me at that time was an investment. And I was like, do I need a course? I could figure it out. You know, I, I can figure out the tech and stuff. But what I really needed help with was the nitty gritty of podcasting itself and the structure. And one thing you talk about in the course, I hope I can mention it here without giving too much away, which is absolutely talk about the course as much as you want. Josh. All right. Thank well, so much for this. <laughs> so I was just going to launch with one episode. And then one thing that you said that was like, ding, again, was make it like a concert. If a band comes out and does one song and then they go home, the whole crowd's like, what? That was it? And that's exactly the right mindset to have when you kick off your podcast. So you said launch with at least three episodes and have some in a backlog. And that's exactly what I did. So I had my three episodes. I had my artwork done, description. That was a big piece too, was instead of needing to figure out artwork size, figure out how the descriptions work, how to submit your podcast. I literally just built mine why I did the lessons in the course. So it was awesome. It was like a playbook for me to fast track all that. And then I I had those episodes up. I officially launched my podcast on November 4th, 2019 and had three episodes live, had a whole marketing plan and had some backed up. So I was able to stay ahead of that. And that's how it all started with the podcasting, man. So as at the time of recording this, I'm 73 episodes in. And it's been like the top converter for me. Like every student, I swear, every student that goes through my web design course bundle and my top tier courses, and now my membership, which I'm happy to talk about, every one of them mentions the podcast. It brings in a whole new audience compared crazy, to my right? YouTube. Yeah. So like my YouTube videos bring in great people, but it's mainly people that are just starting out in web design. They're not ready to invest in a business course. They're just learning website stuff. So I'm kind of... I'm catering my content to people who are just learning web design and then people who are learning web design, but then they're serious about a business. Like they want to work for themselves. They want to work when and where they want. They want to build their business. And the podcast has brought those people to me, the business-minded, serious professionals and just great people. Like people in the podcast realm are just cool. Like I'm sure you've experienced, right? Like you've experienced this with everyone you interview. They're just cool. Like every, I just interviewed uh, John Voin, who's a member of SPI Pro as well. And he's a big fan of yours. I just had him on. He was just a cool dude. Like it's, it's amazing. Whenever somebody comes to the podcast, I know more than likely they're, they're going to be, a, they're going to be a cool guy or cool gal. That's cool. Well, thank you for that. And just sharing your thoughts on Power of Podcasting. And obviously, we have that available at powerofpodcasting.com for anybody who wants to check that out. And we'll put links in the show notes and everything. I do want to talk really quick before we get into the membership, because it's interesting. We're on very similar paths, in a sense, like doing a lot of the same kind of things. And now you've just come out recently with a membership. I want to see how that sort of is an add-on or how you sort of interplay with your courses and, and what that's done for you. But I have a very specific question about the podcast. And I'm going to take this clip, I'm going to take your answer, and I'm going to just share it with everybody who asks the same question. And that's this. What in the world do you talk about in a podcast about something so visual? What Mm. would even be good content on something like that? We have photographers, we have people who are web designers, other people in visual niches who are just like, I don't know if a podcast makes sense for me because you kind of have to see the thing for value to be there. But obviously, that's not true. Yeah, totally agree. So my podcast is about design, but also the biz. I probably talk about business stuff more than design. However, 
in regards to web design, I talk a lot about conversion-based stuff. So you don't necessarily need to see it to hear about how designs can convert, whether it's having a strong call to action, knowing the demographic of a website, something you've talked about, Pat, that I've totally ripped off from you and fed it to my students and they think I'm awesome, is the idea of when you have like a newsletter sign up, instead of having name, email, sign up, I talked totally ripped this off from you talking about have a button to get a quick win first, then bring them to the form where they give you their name and email or phone or whatever, because it's a lot like a lot like dating. I think you talked about this. Like when I met my wife, I talked to her. We made small talk before I asked for her number. I didn't, I see she, she used to work at Panera. She was a catering coordinator. I did a lot of meetings there. Thought she was pretty cute. So long story short, I ended up getting her number over the counter in front of a lot of people. So it could have been a little embarrassing had she said no. But uh, we had already made like small talk before that, before I asked for her details. If I was just some random guy that said, hey, can I have your name and your number? Uh, No, no, absolutely not. But, you know, we had kind of established a relationship and then I asked for her number. So I take the same principle and I'm implementing that with all of our sites with like a call to action. So don't just have name, email, and all that stuff there. Get a quick win, get somebody to know you first, and then they'll be much more apt to sign up. So, you know, that's, I hope that's a good example of a way to like, I could talk about it visually, but those kind of conversion-based stuff, at least in web design, is huge. And it translates to how you would do things visually. That's perfect. Thank you. I think just hearing examples like that makes sense. Thank you for that story, by the way. I can just imagine like, Somebody going to Panera and being like, can I get the, you know, the the salad with the Greek goddess dressing and your number? It's and your like, number. Uh, oh, yeah. I'll take, the, I'll take the pick two and a date tonight. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Pick two. The food <laughs> and you. Let's go. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for that. That's I'm going to use that answer many times because it's just it's just very obvious to me and to you. But to others, it's just like, no, that's impossible. But there are ways to do it correctly. So let's finish off this conversation talking about your membership. When did, did this come into play? Why did it come into play? What's what's it doing for you? Yeah, so the membership is brand new at this point. And what I found, and I think you guys have probably found this as well with SPI Pro, because I'm a member in that, your, your guys' membership, is the courses were amazing. And life-changing stories, amazing stuff. But there was one big problem with courses. And for anyone who's doing courses, I would, I would definitely listen to this because this is huge. The problem with courses is that it is not recurring income. It's you have really good waves on sale periods or marketing periods. And I do, to answer your previous question from a while ago, I do keep my courses open all the time. So people do you know, join them and they funnel in. But the problem I found is that when students went through my courses, I'd hear from them for a while, but then inevitably they would disappear. And it's no fault of their own. They just, they were done with the course. Like unless I intentionally reach out to them or they reach out to me, they're not going to stay involved. And I was able to reach out with a lot of students initially, but now I just crossed over 700 students. And I can't, you know, I can't think to remember how did, you know, Jim do, how's Jim doing from 10 months ago? I just can't, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's not practical. So I knew I wanted something that was going to be like the glue to kind of hold everyone together. And I also realized through my web design journey and expanding my network through these courses and seeing some amazing students come through and doing the podcast, I have built like this incredible network. 
And I'm not boasting myself on that. I'm boasting like there is an amazing group of people here that I've just been fortunate to talk to and piece together. And I found myself being essentially a matchmaker with email. People would be like, hey, do you know somebody who does this? Or do you know somebody who'd be a good fit for this? And I was doing that left and right. And so there was all these signs that led me to feel like I needed some sort of membership. So once I launched my final course and sold my business, the big thing was thinking about my membership. What I wanted to do was to bring kind of my tribe together. And a quote that you say all the time that I always pass on as well is that your vibe attracts your tribe. And that's 100% what I found with my membership. Everybody who has joined already, and we just did the soft launch. Like, I, I mean, it, like I just launched last week. Like, it's brand new, at, at least at That's the time cool. of recording this. So, brand new, keeping it small, quality over quantity. But the people in there are like minded. They've all primarily been through my courses. They all have that same, they're on the same wavelength of like being helpful, being generous, and being serious about their business. So, I knew I wanted to bring everyone together, and the membership was the perfect way to do that. It was also a great way. It was kind of like, again, the glue to hold all the other stuff in and around the courses. So, you know, with web design, it's a really complex type of industry that's changing a lot. So there is all these little things like advanced stuff with Google Analytics, with advanced stuff with email delivery, stuff that I didn't really cover in any of my courses. That They just didn't lend themselves to those courses. But the membership is a great place to do additional trainings and workshops that will be a perfect complement to those. So... I imagine you'll probably ask this, but my courses are separate. The membership is not access to the courses. The membership is community, networking. I do weekly Q&As, a monthly training. And in the monthly training, I'm also bringing in experts to talk more about certain subjects. Like we've got one coming up on SEO. Next month, I'm doing a training on how to get better in front of camera because a lot of my students are wanting to implement video in their marketing, but every all web designers are terrified to get in front of the camera. So I just want to pass on what I've learned about that. So, you know, there's all these like secondary and tertiary type of trainings that are a perfect fit for the membership. And then members will get access to me as well. That's the other big piece is I'm realizing I'm already to the point where I can't get back to every email just about. And uh, the way I'm communicating, I'm sure you've seen this, Pat, like, the way I'm communicating with all my students is extremely messy until opening the membership because it's Facebook Messenger, it's email, it's you know YouTube comments. There's like all these different places I'm, I'm getting hit from left and right. And I should say too, I run a web designer Facebook group that's really big, 22,000 people now. So I'm getting you know pinged in that. But just as an aside, there's a big difference between a free Facebook group and a membership. The Facebook group, yeah. you just never know. I mean, I've tried to build the best community there as possible, but it's a free group, 22,000 people. You don't know what kind of answer you're going to get if you post <laughs> something. So, whereas the membership, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be quality. So, I kind of took us on some tangents there, but hopefully that was a good, uh, no, that's, you know, look as that's, to why. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. I think it's very smart. Obviously, we've done the same thing with SPI Pro. Thank you for being a member and, and big shout out to all the pros that are out there. If you want to learn more about that, smartpassiveincome.com slash pro. Before I forget, Josh, where can people like see all this stuff, get all this stuff? Obviously, we'll have links in the show notes, but is it just joshhall.co to get all the things that you're talking about? Yep, joshhall.co, that's C-O. Link to courses if you just want to check them out just to see how I do it. My podcast is there if you want to get a feel for that. Yep, every everything is there. Everything on my YouTube channel and, and all my tutorials still funnel back to my site. So there's another SEO tip for everybody. Put all your content... Put it on the site. Make your website the most important hub for sure. Yes, exactly, exactly. When it comes to the membership, what are your thoughts on price point? I know that's a a big thing that we had discussed internally in our team for quite a while. 
how much are we asking people to pay monthly and or annually? Where was your decision put at? Yeah, that was a painstaking decision Mm -hmm. because web designers, you know, for the people who are just starting their journey, it's likely they're making five to 10 grand, maybe probably less than that. So the membership may not be the best fit until they're at least over the 10 grand mark, although they still can. But I, I just, I don't want it to be a burden on people. I want people to be able to invest confidently in it. But there's people I'm coaching who are doing 50 to six figures and growing a six figure business. So I wanted to try to have a happy medium. So what I ended up landing on, originally I was going to do tiers. I was going to do a lower tier that access to the membership, but not access to me. I was going to do a middle range tier that had access to the membership and like a messaging thread with me. Then I was going to do a higher like intensive coaching tier. What I decided to launch with mainly for my sanity was the middle tier, which was. 99 bucks a month and then 999 a year. So I think SBI Pro at the time of recording this, I think is 49, 499 a year. So basically just double that, mainly because it's still access to me. Like I'm the one running the membership. I don't have a team doing it yet. I also don't want it to be that big, quite frankly. Like I we're at the time of recording this, we're at 50 members. Once we get to a hundred, I feel like I'm gonna have to really start changing how I run it, get some help. So I didn't want it to be too big. I want it to be, again, quality over quantity. I felt like that was a decent price point to where it would weed out some of the people who are not ready for that kind of thing. But again, Mm -hmm. I have a free web design group. They can join. And like 95% of my content is free. So I still feel like I'm doing a fine service for everyone who wants to pick off the free stuff. So that was the price point. And I decided I'm just going to launch with my middle tier Maybe I'll open up a lower tier one day. I'm hesitant towards doing that. I will definitely eventually do more intensive coaching. But right now, I really like the work-life balance I've struck. You know, I've got a family. Like I mentioned, I've got two little girls. I personally don't work more than 35 hours a week on average. I, I really like doing work segments. And like we're recording this on a Friday afternoon for me. This morning, took my girls to swim lessons. And we, you know, like we have these things where I kind of work around the lifestyle I want. So I say all that to say I, I didn't want to launch a big membership and then hate it and then just be like, you know, stressed out and have a bunch of calls that I couldn't keep up with. So it really is a testament to what I've learned as an entrepreneur over the past decade because I've been doing, I've been freelancing myself and working for myself for a decade now is do it a phase at a time. I'm a big proponent of doing things in phases. So mm-hmm. particularly with a membership, it's going to evolve. I let my members know right from the get-go, it's going to evolve. So be patient. We're going to do this together. It was actually... I don't know how you guys felt, but I felt like it was very hard to promote the membership and build a landing page for it when there was nothing in there. Like it was just me. So what I did was I I let founding members in. I had already built like a founding member interest list. I told I talked about it on my podcast, did some little promotion just to say, hey, I'm membership is coming soon. If you're interested in finding out more and becoming a founding member, sign up. And I did some live Q&As and got people's feedback. I should mention too, for the initial founding member launch, I did do a discount for founding members. So it's 79 per month and they get grandfathered in that will always stay their rate uh, or seven ninety nine a year. So it's a 20% off founders discount. And that's everyone in the club right now. And the really cool thing is like the founding members, not only are they loving it, but they are like the best of the best. It's just... it. What's really cool for me, I think for anyone who does courses and content creation is considering some sort of membership is... 
I've got all these people, like I mentioned, these different networks. Now I see them together. So I, mm-hmm. I had this one student who I loved talking to, and I knew she'd be a great fit with this other student. Well, now in the membership, they're talking together and they're partnering on stuff and they're helping each other out. And it's just, it's like, it's just the coolest thing in the world. So I mean, I'm just, I'm just getting my feet wet with it, but it is, it is awesome. And I do want to say I am completely, again, using the SPI and Pat Flynn playbook. Learn from your podcast stuff. Learn from your content strategies and affiliate marketing strategies. I'm doing the email course next month, which I'm really excited about. But so I'm learning all... I'm taking the playbook and I did the same thing for the membership. So my membership is a little bit different than SPI being that it's just me and it's much more... There's some more technical stuff involved in there. But the big question was, what platform do I use? Like, what? This is a big deal. This is a really big... This is a really big decision. And you guys use a platform called Circle at circle.so. And checked it out, loved the interface, loved the UX, the user experience. And I decided to become a member for SPI Pro for two reasons. I wanted to be a member and get your exclusive trainings and hop in there. But I also wanted to see like what's working. That way I can <laughs> use it for my community. So Love it. Uh, and going back to what I did originally with the interview series I did with web designers, since I'm all about doing some R&D, some research and development, and sharing it with other people, I interviewed your senior content manager, Karen, uh, yeah. and I had her on my podcast. So she wrote the story for me on the SPI blog. And I, I just really enjoyed talking with her. And I said, Karen, would you be interested in coming on my podcast and sharing what you've learned about membership stuff? Because a lot of my web design students build membership sites out for clients. So again, multi-purposing, killing two birds with one stone kind of thing. So I interviewed her, learned a lot. And then uh, as I learned more about Circle, I decided, you know what? This platform, for one, it's brand new. They're making a lot of incredible improvements, but it's fresh. It's clean. You've talked about it before, Pat. It's kind of like a mix between Facebook and Slack and a little bit of LinkedIn, maybe like all together, which is great because I've just, I'm getting a little tired of social media, particularly being that we're just out of, you know, election, political time. It was just, it's very hard with free Facebook groups to be focused when there's just so much outside distraction on Facebook. So not even just that, not even the polarizing stuff, but even just ads for products or you saw your mother-in-law did something. You're like, well, you know, you're going to get distracted. So with a membership, you're there for that. So I think there, I've already had a lot of students and members say, I feel like I'm I'm on Facebook less and I just feel more balanced and I like being here. So I heard the same thing too, which is just really nice. So that's that's really cool. And I love that you launched with a smaller founding group and they're ho- helping to influence sort of where it's going to go. You know, we did a founding group as well, 10 times bigger, 500 people. And it was definitely a lot of work for sure. And it's obviously not just me, it's my team. You've gotten to meet Karen, there's Matt, obviously. We even hired a new person, Jillian, to manage and take care of the customer experience, the student experience and the memberships. And it's just been really great. I mean, we've gotten incredible feedback. And I think more than ever, especially after what we've, all gone through in 2020, just connections are what people are missing more, right? And here we are building communities. And, you know, community is not about us as the leader always. We happen to be the one who puts these things together and facilitates and and, and creates these discussions. But it's really about the connections between members. And I love that you shared that, that example. That was the other big thing, Pat. You just hit the nail on the head there. Now, more so than ever with the pandemic stuff continuing on is there is such a need for online community and there's no better time for it. And there's such a need Mm -hmm. for an online community that is again, private and 
related to what you're most interested in and to have like some like-minded professional type of support. Like that's the other big thing too with some of these free Facebook groups. I'm not against free Facebook groups. I run one and I have some for my courses, but there is just a difference, man. When you're in like some sort of membership or mastermind where particularly in circle. I just, I love the design. Like I just like being in the platform. That's one reason I chose it. I was looking at some other ones, but I just didn't like being in there. Like I just like being in circle. So yeah, you know, I, I just, I love the membership. It's an incredible addition alongside the courses. And it's also a great addition alongside my podcast. And I'm continuing to do tutorials. And my next kind of phase moving forward is figuring out how to best do all the different content for a certain type of platform. So that's kind of the next thing I'm working on. But I'm a big proponent of focusing on, you know, your tribe. I'm, you know, I've got competitors that have massive YouTube channels that have millions of views and hundreds of thousands of subscribers. Mine is fairly modest. I do have almost 20,000 subscribers and almost 2 million views. But compared to some of my competitors, that's nothing. But I'm running a really healthy six-figure business now with a core group of tribe people and I'm balanced. I don't feel scattered. I don't feel overwhelmed. And I'm able to keep it much more personal and relatable. So I like the less is more mentality. I'm actually, I've got it right here. I'm reading a book called Company of One, yep. which I would highly recommend. Okay, Paul. Yeah. Great book. Yep. Great. I, just, I think entrepreneurship, the industry in general, I feel like is shifting more towards folks like yourself, Pat, who are encouraging those who don't want a big, stressful business. Bigger is not always better. And I think I'm a prime example of how you can focus on like a small group of people. Like how many people are learning web design? Hundreds of thousands, millions. But I've got 700 in my courses and just 50 in my membership. And it's awesome. And so I'm making, I'm making a really good impact with a small group. And I like that. I just, you know, it's, I think it's a great way to go. You can find your tribe. You can find people that resonate with you and your brand. And you don't need hundreds of thousands. Of, what's the, uh, is it a thousand true fans? Is that, I haven't yeah, read that Kevin, yet, but Kevin you mentioned Kelly. it. So yeah, I want to, I want to read through that because just from hearing you and a couple other colleagues talk about that, I'm like, yes, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So yeah, quality yeah. over quantity. Yeah. Hey, Josh, thank you so much. Definitely check out a Thousand True Fans. That's what inspired my book, Super Fans. And it's something that I think would be very relevant for your clients and your students as well to inspire them. And like you said, you don't need a blockbuster hit. You don't need millions of views, millions of subscribers. You just need that core group. And, you know, you're yeah. not even at a thousand and you're doing well and you have a six figure business. That's that's just incredible. Can I say something real quick too, Pat, on that idea of smaller versus like the bigger scale? Yeah, please. Because it doesn't just apply to course creators or coaches or member stuff. I tell this to my students who are web designers, you don't need to keep on hustling and killing yourself to land a new client every day or every week. You could focus on a couple dozen clients and bring that to six figures if you provide enough value. That's what I experienced in web design. I was able to take it to six figures with, I think, 40-some clients. And you can absolutely do that. The same could be true for photographers or coaches or yoga studios or any other type of industry. If you focus on your people... And don't be a cable company, meaning don't give all your best deals to new people and then jack up their prices a year later. Take care of your current clients. I'm also, just as an aside, for course creators, I always give a discount for current students for other courses. So once they're in a course, but yeah, exactly. Like they're in the loyalty program, they feel special. Take care of those current people. It will take so much stress off needing to feel like you need to constantly hustle and sell, sell, sell when you have a good group of people and you focus on them. 
I think it's a beautiful message to end on and a message that I think a lot of people needed to hear, especially, and I believe this episode's coming out at the beginning of 2021. So right to start off the year, what an amazing sentiment. Josh, this has been incredible. Thank you. Congratulations to you and all of your success and can't wait to continue to chat with you and to learn more from you and see you in SPI Pro and all that great stuff. One more time, joshhall.co. That's where you want to go. Thank you, Josh. We appreciate you. Thanks, Pat. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, what an amazing way to start the year with Josh Hall, our second episode of the year, and we got plenty more coming. So make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And of course, you can always check out the show notes if you wanna get more info about Josh and the things that he has going on. You can again, check him out at joshhall.co or the show notes page with other resources for you at smartpassiveincome.com slash session 456. Once again, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 456. Thank you all so much. I appreciate you. Hit subscribe so you can get next week's episode delivered right to you. And we'll see you then. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com. All right, so if you know me, or maybe you don't, but as you might know, one of the most important things when it comes to building your business is actually creating relationships with your audience, truly. The problem is, building a relationship can take time, and it's harder than ever to keep people's attention these days. I mean, think about it. YouTube, maybe you get five minutes of a person's attention. On a blog post, maybe the same amount of time. But this is exactly why I believe so strongly in the power of podcasting. I mean, you're listening to one right now. It's the most powerful way I know to strengthen your relationship with your audience and grow your influence while giving you plenty of options to bring in new income as well. It's not just about advertising. There's so many different ways to generate an income through podcasting in a very genuine and authentic way. So if you're interested in starting a podcast this year, now's the time to do it. Join me on January 19th at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern for a free live training called Podcasting the Smart Way. Nine Strategies to Creating, Promoting, and Monetizing a Successful Podcast that Grows Your Influence and Income Online, where you're gonna learn how to create a podcast that gets found. That's my specialty in the podcasting training space, not just how to create a podcast, but one that gets found and one that helps you grow your business. You're gonna learn why podcasting is the number one most powerful platform on this webinar. Again, January 19th. You're gonna learn how to take the best advantage of this medium for your business. The only piece of equipment that you might need to sound like a pro. Super ninja tactics that you can use to grow your podcast. The most important thing to do when you launch your podcast so you get heard on day one. How to structure your show, all the things. There's a lot of things, but this is our most popular presentation. If you haven't seen it before, I highly recommend you check it out. If you're ready to jumpstart your podcasting career, go to smartpassiveincome.com slash podcasting webinar, no spaces, to sign up for our free training, Podcasting the Smart Way. That's smartpassiveincome.com slash podcasting webinar, all one word. You got this. This week's episode has come to an end, but the fun doesn't have to stop here. If you have any questions, suggestions, or feedback, head over right now to Twitter and Facebook and like, share, and get involved. Join us next time.
Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.